The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. Welcome to Burger Yippee. Would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won. Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing high five casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! I won again. I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your high five moment today? Only at highfivecasino.com. High five casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High five casino. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. I'm going out with the girls this weekend. Nails, done. Outfit, stunner. And my skin? I know it's going to be glowing because I glammed up my shower routine with new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash. It smells so luxurious and deeply moisturizes with its super rich, creamy lather that's bursting with vitamin B3 complex. So my skin glows and my confidence grows. Try new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash for glowing skin in just 14 days. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Take it away, Robert Evans. Gosh, it could happen here. Wow. I did it. Brilliant. Thank uh, you. Yeah, I love I love that, really. Uh Thank Rob- you. You're you're Robert Evans. We also have Christopher Wong, Garrison Davis, and we have Andrew here with us who will be leading this episode. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Hello, everyone. How's the weather? <laughs> it's so in, hot. In Portland, it is cold. Everywhere else in the continental United States, it is a boiling hellstorm. Yes. Actually, to, to, today today it's only 84, but uh, yeah, we, we, we have three days where it's barely in the 80s, and then it goes back to being like 97 again. Yeah, it's very, it's very exciting. Same with, Lo- same with Los Angeles. I don't understand your temperature measurements, but <laughs> oh, same uh, with Los Angeles. It's lovely today. We're lovely for the next couple of days, and then we'll be burning. 30, 30, 36. 36 is is ninety seven. It's going to be perfect here forever. Climate hot. change is over in Northern Oregon. I have declared it. 
Well, if you declared it, it must be true. Exactly. <laughs> so today, I uh, want to have a bit of a discussion, an open discussion um, about my favorite kind of discourse, and that is dead discourse. Cool. Uh, I wanted to talk about a discussion, quote unquote, that people have been having a couple of weeks ago about restaurants. And oh, restaurant discourse. This uh, whole idea that people uh, heard about five minutes ago and got super riled up over and sparked a whole bunch of like drama because that's what social media incentivizes. But I figured, you know, we could have a nice roundtable discussion here about quote-unquote restaurant abolition and share our thoughts on the ideas presented in the zine that inspired it, for those of us who read it, Abolish Restaurants by Info. But first of all, I wanted to share a bit about my experience in the food industry. It was quite brief, and by brief I mean like four days. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I started working at this this winery slash cafe that was um, owned and run by this trust fund baby. And it was very clear that she had failed up <laughs> for most of her life. Um, it was very disorganized and very stressful experience. I quit like a few days after I got it because instead of, you know, making coffees and preparing wines and stuff, I got a job pushing paper in an office, which is only marginally better. And I mean, I don't want to speak over like food service people or anything because like my experience is very limited, but in my own limited experience, it sucked. I mean, my blood into water trying to keep up with everything it was one of those kind of under the table jobs where you don't have a contract or a specific job description it's just like you're doing everything so you're sorting and taking out recycling you're organizing stock you're making coffee you're busting tables you're cashing products you're handling accounting for some reason like lady i just got here but i'm already doing accounting um and so on and so forth i didn't have an official break either and i wasn't allowed to sit at all um, I mean, my boss said that I could stop for lunch when I needed to, but because of this, these constant like responsibilities she was piling on to me, I basically never got a chance to take a breather. The one time I did take a lunch break, she rushed me out to the lunch break because I was <sighs> taking too long. And um, she was busy taking care of her other real estate and her only consistent customers were her friends and yet somehow... You know, she kept the doors open and the lights on because, you know, trust fund baby. But yeah, to reiterate, it was a very sucky experience. I, I what about you all? You all had any? Yeah, I worked at a restaurant for starting when I was in high school. I was 15 and a half for three or four years, part of college. It made me learn a lot about how awful people are. But. It was like you did learn how to work in a team and things like that, helpful skills there, but management was terrible, Uh, not exactly easy work, not exactly fun work. Um, Yeah, it was like I, I honestly feel like a lot of people should have to do some type of job like that so that they learn, you know, how to, how to treat people who work in that in that kind of position. Um because mostly 
my memories of it is terrible, horrible customers who just treated people like scum. Yeah. Um, but I needed the job. So, yeah. Yeah. My only experience in food service was working at a Sonic. Not for a crazy long time, but it was terrible. Um, and it left me with an abiding like respect for people who have to do that. And uh, uh, I, I, you know, we can talk, we'll talk more about the restaurant thing, but I certainly don't think fast food restaurants are a thing that exists in my ideal future. Cause oh, I don't God. know how you could possibly operate those without a tremendous amount of human suffering and wasted potential. Cause they're just, they're bad things. Now that said, any utopian society will have a way to acquire Popeyes, but perhaps not, <laughs> At like midnight in every city of the country, whenever you want it. You My know? utopian society is a world in which KFC has been abolished and everything else still exists. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> well, well, that's I mean, the episode, everybody. Thank yeah, you for that's the episode. <laughs> Again, this is It Could Happen Here, sponsored by like Carl's Jr. I'm perfectly okay with imperialism, but like, I need but some no Wendy's KFC. fries, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Andrew, keep the KFC. Look, Andrew, what what kind yeah. of like can I ask like what kind of restaurant? I know Robert said his was fast food. Mine was very like casual food. What what kind of restaurant did you work at? Right. It wasn't it was like a winery slash cafe. And it also served food. It was like attached to a hotel. Got so, it. Oh yeah, and the ho yeah. the hotel part of it probably made it even. Yeah, worse. her parents owned the hotel and so oh, she Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah. I I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, Chris, Garrett, are either of you either work in the food food service industry at all? Yeah, I, I worked at a bakery for like a year and a half, mostly back of the house. Um, but I mean, I would, you know, would end up washing, washing dishes and taking out recycling and all that kind of stuff. But most of my work was designing recipes because I was more on like the food science uh, angle. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's I have a complicated uh feelings on like cafes specifically i mean i i love anarchist cafes and like the idea yeah. of an anarchist cafe i would love to love to like have one at some point yes it's, like operated by the workers quote unquote owned by the workers mm -hmm. um with a shooting but... range out back <laughs> but obviously there's <laughs> guns the and buns we call it guns and buns <laughs> You can get a croissant and you can shoot Robert, a, a nine millimeter. If you want to fund my cafe, by all means, I, I, guns and buns right. sounds like the name, name of like a gym or something. Whatever you want, if you want, <laughs> yeah. you're gonna. Andrew's it, absolutely right. It, that sounds got, like a you're gym. Right. Guns and buns is a breakfast cafe gun range strip club, and apparently a gym. As long as as long as you fund it, you can name it whatever you want. Um, but the but people yeah, I mean, will fund it, Garrison. <laughs> Obviously, the food service industry has. has yes, a, we'll has just a make it a cooperative. That makes everything. <laughs> yeah, else, right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, please continue. But yeah, but like the food service industry has a lot of problems. But if I if I were go if I were able to go into a bakery, like maybe like two or three times a week to just bake food for people, and that helps me live the rest of the week, I would totally do that. Right. So like it depends on a lot of factors, but. I think it's like there's ideas around like an anarchist cafe, worker owned cafe that'd be like totally chill to work at it, to, to like be there a few days of the week making food because I enjoy making food. I enjoy baking. I, I like food science. Um, but, you know, when you, when, you start, when you start tying that into labor and exploitative labor practices and the notion of like having to serve other people, then it gets a little bit more tricky um, and, you know, less, less, less good. Less cash money. I understand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, what's, what's, what's kind of funny about it, um, I would say is like, God, I lost my train of thought. Uh, go ahead, Robert. 
Let me just think for a sec. Well, so, I mean, one of the things that I have noticed over the years, because I've had a lot of friends work as bartenders, as waiters and waitresses, there are there's a chunk of people who really like the work. They usually don't like their employer. They often have issues with, like, their manager or whatever, but, like, they like their coworkers and they enjoy the the act of, like, doing restaurant stuff. Um, yeah. I, I, and I know that like, so one of the things that I did recreationally for years is I was go to the, I would go to these regional Burning Man events. And one of the rules there is like, everyone pays the same thing to get in. There's no like, get, there's no like talent. So there's nobody who's like paid to be there as an act. And there's no like exchange of currency allowed, but there are restaurants. There are people who like bake food and, and, and give out yeah. and like make and give out coffee. There's, there's multiple bars. And a number of the people I knew who were like the most, who would spend the most of their time, which is again, totally their own at these events, volunteering as bartenders, were people who worked as bartenders and were like, look, I like serving drinks. I hate a lot of what goes along with being in a bar, but I enjoy making and serving drinks. Absolutely. There was this one really cool dude out in the middle. He was out because it's spread out over acres of woodlands. There was just this guy I found one night alone in the woods at like a podium sized little booth lit up bar he'd made. And he was like, look, I am a very good bartender. What I do not like is making the same things every night for drunk people who don't know anything about a good mixed drink. So you and I are going to have like a five minute conversation and then I'm going to tell you what I'm going to make you based on like, yeah. And it was fucking dope. Yeah. It was really cool. Like that. Yeah. More stuff like that, more like restaurant pop-ups that are like those types of things are, are just are divorced from like this notion of like, you know, being served by a lower class member of society instead it's people like sharing actual interests that they have and they're not obligated to be there or else they get you know or or else they're not able to pay their rent right there's lots of things like a utopian society where we like yeah i would totally be down with doing some some kind of you know some kind of thing related to giving food to other people or preparing food or you know drink like mixed drinks uh uh, i i i I like making uh, coffee a lot like espresso and shit um so like I can totally see that, but right now you know it's just a totally different field um, by and large for most people in you know the food service industry, and it sucks. Yeah. To work in the, and by by and large, it really yeah. sucks to work in the food service industry. Yeah, the food service industry is one of the most exploitative industries in the country. That said, the idea of gathering in public to consume food and beverages is fundamental to human beings. And we're never not going to have that as societies. So there has to be ways in which to have versions of that. And again, probably not the every 10 minutes you get the same three fast food restaurants that are open all night. That probably, that definitely does not exist in an ideal society. But in any, any better society, human beings will gather to eat and drink around each other because it's something we've done in every civilization that has ever existed. So, exactly. Andrew, do you, do, do you want to talk a bit more about the actual zine? Because I, I feel like a lot of people's yeah. discourse around the zine is not about the zine itself. It's about what the title of the zine is. Yeah, <laughs> because people, you, people should read the actual zine. If because, you read it, it makes very reasonable yeah. arguments. Um, the title is just intentionally provocative. Um, so, yeah. And what I've realized about intentionally pro- provocative slogans is that the people who, who want to get it, you know, they they tend to be drawn into those kinds of things. And then there's some people who see something provocative and it kind of shuts them down. Yes. Yes. Some people see it, see something so provocative and see it's like, Hmm, I want to learn more. And then other people see it and they have like kind of a gut reaction to it. It's like, it's like the backfire effect type thing. Yeah. So, I mean, to get into the kind of the history of it and 
just the idea of restaurants as as the zine explores. According to the discourse, a restaurant is just a place to eat. If you sit down in the middle of a desert with a table and a chair and you eat something, that's apparently a restaurant. That's not a restaurant. Uh, <laughs> that is not a restaurant, but okay. <laughs> the definition of a restaurant is a place where people pay to sit and eat meals that are cooked and served on the premises. Okay. Commerce is a part of the definition of a restaurant. Yeah. Why do we universalize and naturalize things that are neither? That is my question. It's like what people do with the state or with capitalism or with police or with gender. I mean, just like those things, the restaurant is an invention. But it's been crystallized and, and induced into our minds as something that is eternal, that is natural, that is universal. You know, when, when Kronk brought his buddy Brock a piece of chicken. That was a restaurant. <laughs> you know, it's like we take, <laughs> we take these things that come from very specific modern capitalist context and we stretch them out over the entire human experience. If you look into the history of restaurants, the first restaurants began to appear in Paris in the 1760s. Even as late as the 1850s, majority of the restaurants in the world were located in Paris. And I mean... For those who know a little bit about history, Paris is kind of an interesting place where a lot of things happen. Especially during that rough time that period. span. <laughs> yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Exactly. I mean, elsewhere around the world, communal meals were quite common. People cooked communally and they ate communally and there were no restaurants. Specifically, before the invention of restaurants in, in, in Paris, around Europe at least, rich people had servants who cooked for them. Travelers had inns where their meal was included with the price of the room and they ate with the innkeeper and his family. And peasants, they ate their meals at home. And of course, there were also caterers for events and special occasions and there were taverns and wineries and cafes and bakeries for certain foods and drinks. Of course, later on, all of those things, the taverns, the wineries, the, cake, the cafes and the bakeries, after restaurants came about, those other institutions started to shape and bend into the sort of the mold of the restaurant that was established. Restaurant, based on the name of it, um, comes from this, this idea that they were meant to restore health to sick people. Restaurant. Restaurant. Right? And they used to serve these small meat stews. So by, by, that, by that metric, Taco Bell cannot be a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would argue that it is the only restaurant. <laughs> It's well. It's going to restore bowel movement. If you have any kind of blockage, <laughs> that, that that it will restore that. But mm-hmm. besides that, I cannot. I can do not think it's going to restore anything. Yeah, Taco Bell is probably something like a laxatant. <laughs> 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 you know, but um, yeah. So why France? Why Paris? Why restaurants? It kind of occurred after the food craft guilds were abolished by the revolution. It was like this attempt to kind of democratize the food industry, you know, liberty, galette, fraternité, hon, 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 all that jazz. <laughs> and so, so restaurants kind of began springing up because all these former cooks of the now beheaded king and aristocrats, they wanted to work somewhere. Sure, yeah. And so, you know, in a restaurant, you could get a meal at any time the business was open. Anyone with money could get a meal. 
customers would come and they would eat at individual tables, eat individual plates and bowls of food. They get to choose from another option, a number of options. And they grew in size and complexity as they went along. They got a fixed menu. And, and eventually, then, one beautiful like said, day, we invented the Baconator. Yes. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. That is the end. That is Fun the end fact, the Baconator <laughs> was the first burger I had when I went to the US. Wow. Uh, okay. I would apologize, but this country's done so much worse than that. <laughs> 107 fun facts about Andrew. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, it's a little thing to tune in and you get a little new fact that you could, I don't know, add to my Wikia page or something. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was mid, honestly. My brother makes better boogers. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that makes, that's besides the point. Yeah. Um, ne- nearly every burger that you can get at a fast food restaurant is is mid yeah tgi fridays had some good re- burgers though now but so tgi TGI's fridays kind of to have a burger that is the place when you're in a town you've never been before that's where you want to just show up and get absolutely shithouse drunk until 2 a.m with like a bunch of strangers at the tgi fridays bar which is the boulevard of broken dreams like it's only people who can't hack it in a regular bar and weirdos traveling through town i love a tgi fridays bar (laughs) okay i was not aware of that stereotype i mean there's a tgi here in trinidad and um (laughs) I mean, last time I knew they had like some kind of karaoke thing going on, but yeah, it's probably the the vibe. I haven't been too many times. Anyway, I think this is enough product placement for for one episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're, well, we're, we're speaking, really shouting out of, a lot of different places. Speaking of here. product placement, here's ads. Sure, why not? So the growth of the restaurant came the growth of the market. With the growth of the restaurant came the growth of the market. Needs that were, you know, fulfilled either through a direct relationship of domination, like between a lord or a king and his servants, or a private relationship, like within the family, they were now being fulfilled on the open market. What was once a direct oppressive relationship now became the relationship between buyer and seller. Now became an indirect oppressive relationship. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> a, a diffused oppressive relationship almost, because no one person I would say could really carry the blame. A similar expansion of the market took place over a century later with the rise of fast food, because as the 1950s housewife was on her way out, you know, being undermined, and as you know, women started to move into the open labor market, many of the tasks that were done by women traditionally were being transferred onto the market. Not to say that women still don't do the majority of care work um, in modern society, but as women started moving into the office, into the workplace, things started to shift with regard to eating and eating patterns. Now, the important point to note is that, of course, you know, the whole women moving to the workplace thing is kind of a white woman phenomenon because... You know, people of color, women of color were in workplaces before then in large numbers. Yeah. And, and there's there's a thing I think it's important to note here, too, which is like par- part of what's happening here is that like 
some of the care labor that white women were doing gets transferred onto non-white women. And this, this is, this has been one of the things yeah. that like, I, I think we, we talked about this a long time ago in an interview I did with it, with a nurse, but like, like for, for example, you see this with healthcare a lot where like a, a lot of like union workers get these, get, you know, they get really good healthcare plans from the unions, but those healthcare plans are basically subsidized by not paying women of color like shit. And there's this whole sort of like trend around this of sort of like, like you can, you know, if 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 you're rich, if you're rich enough, you you can escape housework, but you escape housework by essentially thrusting it on someone on someone else who's like further down the social ladder than you. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like a form of that um, that phenomenon people have been talking about the the idea of choice feminism, as in any choice that a woman make that a woman makes is part of the feminist sort of movement. So I saw some discourse happening recently where people were talking about. Um, how a woman should have a right if she's a housewife that she should still be able to you know pursue her interests which is of course agreed and the solution being proposed to that was that the man the breadwinner would pay for a domestic servant to come and work for the woman so that she can pursue her other responsibilities her other interests and, and desires. And so it's just kind of this perfect. What a close to <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> because then this woman is working away from her family. And then, you know, it's just like, this is a, it's a messed up system. But yes. So as fast food restaurants began to grow rapidly, people began being paid wages for what used to be housework. And of course, as we know, capitalism could not exist without the billions of dollars of unpaid labor that women perform on a yearly basis. Modern restaurants emerged in the 19th century under specific conditions. They had to be businessmen with capital to invest in restaurants. They had to be customers who expected to satisfy their need for food on the open market by buying it. And they had to be workers with no way to live but by working for someone else. As these conditions developed, as capitalism developed, so did restaurants. And so at the root of this whole abolish restaurants discourse needs to be an understanding of where restaurants came from, their historical development. You cannot take them in isolation and project them, like I said, across all of humanity. Because it's only through understanding it through its specific circumstances that we can transform it as we transform society as a whole. As we were saying, you know, there's a lot of things that are hell about restaurants. The way that work comes in like waves and rushes, a lot of slow time in between. We're either really stressed out or you're really bored. I remember working there at the winery and like for most of the day, I just have to be like, shifting around bottles on the shelves. I couldn't sit down and chill or be on my phone or anything. I just had to busy myself until a customer came. And customers never came yeah. because it was a failed business propped up only by her parents' money. But um, Did you ever get told the phrase, if you can lean, you can clean? Not in, not in those exact words. Yeah. <laughs> yes, in those exact words. <laughs> God, and every fucking manager who says it to you thinks that, like, it's their cool line. Oh, fuck it. Anyway. <laughs> yep. Yeah. 
So you have to just, you have this, this constant thing of trying to look busy while having not, nothing to do. Or you try not to fall behind because you have 10 things to do. Yeah. Everyone is always working harder and faster. And of course, the boss wants to squeeze as much work out of the same number of people out uh, as possible. You know? Like you're pushing people to these ridiculous extremes, which is why it's a kind of stereotype now of like restaurant workers all being on drugs. You know? There's also this whole inhumanity to like employees being paid in tips. Now, as far as I know, nowhere is that as severe as it is in the US. Um, but of course, around the world, there are tipping cultures of varying degrees. And so when you have that sort of work where you're, you're, you're living, your subsistence is so directly tied to like tips, not only do you have this sort of divide being created between the workers, between like, for example, the waiters who make the tips and the cooks who don't make any tips. And they, just, they sort of had to compete against each other because the waiter is trying to get as much done as possible so they can make their tips quickly so they could have their, you know, quick service. Whereas the cooks, they have no intrinsic motivation to push themselves harder. And so yeah, it just becomes I never, stressful. I, 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 never, I never got tips from baking in the back of the house unless some of the people in front of the house would, like, share the tips at the end of the day by their own, like, volition. Yeah, and I, I know folks who worked in places where all tips were shared with the the kitchen staff and it seemed to be a 50-50 breakdown of this is really good and everyone gets paid fairly and this is actually some scam by management to deny people a bunch of tips by like pooling them and the certain fuckery that gets done. So like, it's like any formulation of this inherently winds up being pretty abusive. Yeah. And dividing, you know, another interesting, and I mean, as you guys mentioned, stressful component about, you know, this line of work is of course the customers, which, <laughs> Customer service people in general tend to hate. You know, whether you're working at a bar or you're working at a, you know, a restaurant or even working in like sales in some sort of like retail store. Their whole subreddit is dedicated to how terrible customers are to workers. And so that, that sort of dynamic of service, it, it, it really changes people i mean customers can just as easily be working class as the people working in the restaurant but there's still that dynamic that's created when you are the one being seated and served and the other person yeah. is on their feet serving you some of the worst customers in america at least are uh working class and poorer folks who it's like their chance to be above somebody like when yeah, they go out right, to a yeah. restaurant so they yeah. can be extra shitty yeah that, that is the thing I mean, that happens surprisingly they're even like <laughs> restaurant workers who treat restaurant workers badly when they go to a restaurant uh, yeah exactly yeah exactly. yes it's like someone gets the opportunity to be <laughs> to, to to exert the power and they're like do it in this short 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 amount of time but although i will say i'm sure those are also the restaurant workers who treat people badly at the restaurant they work at <laughs> <laughs> including yeah, like some of the workers some of the yeah. worst things that have ever been said to me were by customers at the restaurant job i had yeah, yeah, yeah. not, not, not like surprising a, no and i was like not i was like i was like in high school i was a kid 
And these are like grown-ups being horrendous. So. Like, I, I think, I think it's like, I don't know. Like when people talk about this, like when people talk about restaurants, like in, in the discourses, it, it's, it's in a way that's like, it's incredibly abstract and doesn't like, it doesn't, it doesn't think about the fact that like the, the relationship between the customer and the people who have to interact with the customers, the house, et cetera, et cetera. Like that, that is a social relation. And it's a social relation that like, that like, like the, the, the power dynamic inherent to it ascribes sort of different kinds, like it ascribes different kinds of behavior to the people who are like, who are like on either side of it. it like it, 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 contr- it controls like what you have to do as a server, like what the, the sort of performances you have to give, like the smile you have to put on, which is actually like, that's the original thing of what emotional labor is, right? It's like the, the labor you have to do to make the person who you're serving, like think that you're like happy and enjoying it and like having a good time. But then, you know, like, on, on the customer's end too, it's like you get this sort of, you know, it's like, oh, this is your one chance to, to be on top of a sort of power relation. And like that, like that, like that specific thing is so fucking evil. It's like there, there, there's, there's a story I think about a lot from, I read it in Chuang originally. It was, it was about, um, like one one of the last emperors of the Tang Dynasty, like his his concubine like loved Leecha and like okay I get it it's Leecha that it gets really good but like Leecha's grown <laughs> Leecha's only grown in this in the south of China you can't really grow it in the north it just doesn't like it's too cold it's too arid and so in order to get her Leecha like every morning they would send like the fastest riders like in China would like be sent by horse like to southern China and then back so that they could get the Leecha there in time like for for it still to be like ripe and like edible. And, you know, that that's the kind that's the kind of power that used to only literally the emperor of China had this ability, right? Like the like the emperor of fucking China could get this commodity and f- like force everyone in a chain to go do this thing for them. And now like everyone has that like literally everyone has that power. Like every time you use Amazon, you have that power. Every time you go to a restaurant, yeah. you have the power to do this. And it it turns people into monsters because like that's you know, like, <laughs> like the Chinese emperors are like yeah. These are some of the worst people who've ever lived. Now, like everyone, everyone, like you, just like like the fundamental basis of the society is there is a place where you can go and you can become the emperor of fucking China. Maybe and it there's is a the problem worst. with the idea of instant gratification being reliant on the exploitation of other people. Yeah, and and like yeah, and, and that doesn't that seem we, right, Garrison. No, oh yeah, like, that, <laughs> never mind. That's horrifying. Don't worry. Now, watch me as I order next day delivery on a sixteen hundred dollar drone just to. Just to fuck around in my backyard, like yes, it's it's everything is fine in America. I I do I am like of the opinion that the grocery store is like the primary artistic achievement of capitalism as a system. Um, they are objectively marvels, um, and they're they're built on a river of blood deeper and wider than is is. It's like it's a hyper object, right? It's like impossible yeah. to to comprehend the full scale of cruelty that goes into being able to like. Well, it is November 14th. I'm going to go get a fresh bag of grapes that have been genetically modified to taste like <laughs> cotton candy. <laughs> yeah. Picked by people making cents an hour in yes. in a country that's on the other side of the world. Yeah. Yes. Whose relatives are shot for attempting to scramble over the border. Yeah. Yeah. That the grapes pass through easily. Yes. <laughs> and and I, th- I think like like that, that points to an, another, like, I think part of the dynamics of with restaurants that happens, which is that like, Okay, like cooking takes time, right? And the the less and less time that you have, the more like the the more reliant you become on yeah. like on these services. And so you see this with like you know like China has like a 
like a particularly horrible like delivery culture. Like you can like you can have someone deliver food to you like to the train like a, like a, a, a sub like a train will stop at a stop and you can have someone run a bag of food to you and then like leave and you just like you go to the next stop and you get off. And that happens because everyone's working nine nine six, and so it's like okay, you're working seven, you're working nine a.m. to nine p.m. six six days a week, and you know you don't you literally do not have time to cook because you're working you're working twelve hours a day. And this an, another like, good example of this is like restaurant re- people who work restaurants, like line cooks and chefs, hardly ever cook for themselves. They always yeah. get food from other restaurants because they're cooking eight to ten hours a day they're not going to go home then cook for themselves they they it's like yeah it's it is this system almost it makes it makes the things that prop it up become necessary to keep the whole thing going it's all like balancing super like precariously on its own weight it's it's equivalent to like if you're in a criminal syndicate making somebody you're working with tangentially shoot a man in the back of the head so that you both have blood on your hands. <laughs> like everyone is everyone like just by, by virtue of existing under it. Like if you're working 60 hours a week as a fucking nurse during COVID or as a fucking line cook dealing with this surge of delivery shit. And then on your way home, you just want to pick up some like sushi from a fucking uh, grocery store that requires ingredients from all around the world and is made by people who are not getting enough money to to make it and is horrible for the environment and the fisheries and all that kind of shit. Um, And but like, what are you supposed to do? Like you, you just you just finished like a 10 hour shift. Like, do you not deserve like one one nice thing at the end of the day? Like, like, so it's if you. People can't like either you become an like a, a complete aesthetic, right? And and reject and, and go kind of Ted K and live in a shack in Montana and reject all of these these kind of modern conveniences, or you accept that like you're going to spend some time wading into the river of blood because otherwise the things you have to do to stay alive in this society are completely emotionally unsustainable. Yeah, like, th- this this was the original like before it kind of became this cop out for like just doing whatever you want but, like this was the original there's no ethical consumption under capitalism yeah. it was about this was about like this specific problem that ev- everything in the society like e- even even if you're fucking living in the woods in montana it's like yeah like where 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 did where like where, where did your cabin come from like where did your nails come from who made the hammer it's like everyone's like completely dependent for everything on the exploitation of other people and it, it is it is a yeah i mean the one thing that gives me a little bit of hope is when andrew was explaining how like Restaurants came arise because of pe- people who used to like work for kings and shit, who then started working at restaurants because they still wanted to make food. It was like that evolution, taking it to the next step, is people who work at restaurants now no longer having to work under capitalist exploitation and realizing, hey, I know how to cook well. I'll just set up like ways to feed the community outside of this system of commerce right that is the next evolution if you start with people people cooking for the king people then cooking in places where you pay to eat in this exploitative system and then people cooking for people so that there's food around in like a community setting right if you if you follow that trajectory that's actually kind of hopeful it's almost Um, like we've come full circle (laughs) i mean in some ways yeah like right it's if if we just go back to like being places yeah, like communal eating. If there's places around different communities, different towns, different like urban centers that have that have the capacity to feed people who are not able to cook, cook 
cook for themselves that night or that day. Yeah. That's something that if if it's there is ways of setting that up, which I can see being so much better than how restaurants work. You know, yeah, maybe like, maybe people wash their own dishes afterwards. Maybe people do something to help with like prep or something, right? Like there's 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 ways to make this that gives you the parts of restaurants that are actually really convenient um without the exploitation. And so that that type of like community cooking is something I mean, you know, that's even similar to like how like a good dinner party operates. Um just that kind of extended out across, you know, more of like a pop-up setting and say, hey, yeah, this this month we're using all of these ingredients that are grown in our general local area, right? We're not getting shipped, we're not getting like strawberries in December shipped from halfway around the world. We'll make stuff that is available um, as it, you know, as it's grown yeah. or we can pickle, we can store food, right? And like, Yeah, and maybe we, we've, ter- we've turned the old defunct Walmart into a grow shelter. So once or twice during the winter, there are some strawberries and everybody comes together and shares this marvel that the community came, like worked as a team to ensure would be available. But you can't just go and buy four pounds of strawberries that are produced with their like twice the weight of the strawberries and pesticide in order to keep them alive in fields that were never meant to grow strawberries. Like maybe that's not available all year round. Like, yep, yeah, yeah. Just get back to the point being raised about um, about like the ethical consumption of the capitalism because that's a really important point. The whole purpose of that saying has been bastardized, but. It really is crucial to have a nuanced understanding of it. What frustrates me is that it's been taken and it's been turned into this justification. Like, yeah. oh, it's okay that I buy from Shein. It's okay that I buy a $3,000 haul from Shein because no ethical consumption of capitalism. Or it's like where somebody goes and they engage in something that is not I mean, necessity look, that is Andrew you're talking around my two and a half pound a day veal habit and I don't appreciate it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that sounds like a that's problem like, that's like some like Joe Rogan nonsense you're like I eat two and a half pounds of veal every day and that keeps my brain running smoothly look, cavemen I mean, only look, it, ate it, it veal out for Jordan Peterson so I mean exactly it did work for Jordan Peterson he's doing great <laughs> cries at the mere notion of Antifa. <laughs> I would do an impression, but it'll hurt my throat. So, moving on. <laughs> Thus, I would say... I would say that... As we were saying, you know, that there really is, is potential. We see even under these conditions that, that people find ways to survive. You know, they create like these informal work groups that are not only able to come together and push back against management, but able to work together to, to create trust within each other. You know, you have like, for example, waiters who would try a hand in the kitchen on a slow day or a cleaner or who might pick up a thing or two a dishwasher who's trying to move up to become like a, a lion cook. All these different workers, they, 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 they do things subtly to try to undermine the unnatural divisions and hierarchies and between the skilled and unskilled um, in the restaurant setting. Of course, it doesn't always work because there are, you know, settings wherein the manager successfully 
created divisions, you know, whether it be the manager creating a division between um, teen different nationalities of, of immigrants or, you know, playing upon someone's queer phobia uh, against like queer staff or someone's biases against, I don't know, I can't think of a third example, but there are ways that managers try to like sow these divisions between workers and there are ways that workers try to push back. There are also ways that managers try to do the opposite, to create a community within the restaurant that includes themselves. So instead of fostering isolation and prejudice, they create a community that, especially in small restaurants, that involves them, that talks about, that, you know, the boss might share with them how difficult it is working and organizing for the business of the restaurant. And, or they might create like a special kind of restaurant focused on their identity. So they might create a restaurant for, for queer youth where all the staff are queer, or you, you know, you have a restaurant for, you know, a, a black owned restaurant where all the workers are black and you try to create a community based on this identity, but it kind of erases the unavoidable class interests between workers and with and management. It it smooths over that dimension. So it becomes more difficult to organize and to speak up for your rights because you're, you're, you're aware that the manager is a human and they too are struggling. Which kind of brings me to the idea of restaurants with no managers and the idea of cooperatives. The issue with cooperative restaurants is that they basically have to collectively take on the role of managers, managing themselves, creating those pressures and pushing those pressures upon themselves. They enforce the work on each other and they, they have to work longer in some cases and work harder in some cases because the structure of a restaurant is designed to make money. And if it is not making money, then everybody loses their job. So due to this pressure, a uh, boss is in a position where they have to push workers to get as much out of the workers as possible. You raise the boss from the occasion, from the equation, but you keep the rest of the concept of a restaurant and the line between worker and boss becomes blurred to the extent where it's almost like that image of a person with a boot on their hand holding a boot on their head. Where this oppression that was once external becomes internalized because that is how a restaurant survives through oppression, through exploitation. It's kind of like with how self-employed people are under capitalism. Yes, you're working for yourself and you have some freedom in that regard, but you're still restricted by the broader system. You haven't escaped it. You've just had to navigate it. Yeah, and I have to, to make quarterly sort of... payments to the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, most of us here, I think, work for ourselves in some capacity or have a certain level of freedom. And it... um you still have those pressures and on it's just you have to inflict them on yourself. You know, you don't have like a a break that has been 
mandated. And so, at least in my case, I don't take breaks because that's just how I am. You know, you work longer hours, you push yourself harder and harder. You work on days when you should be resting and it's just, it illustrates the fact that liberation is not to be found under this system. And it's something totally new with a totally different metric of success, a totally different metric of sustenance, totally different bare minimum and totally different motivation needs to be the foundation upon which society is built because there's profiting now working. Yeah, and, and I think there's a, like, I think the reason this debate happens, like, this, this whole discourse happened in the first place was just that, like, like, just, the it, like, a lot of it really was just a complete inability to imagine, like, literally any other way of, like, even just, like, like any other way of getting food that does not involve you going to a place and telling someone to make it for you. And, like, that, I don't know, like, Yeah, it's I don't know, like the 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 fact that there have already been sort of seismic shifts in the way that like food production happens, right? I think is evidence of like no, we don't have to do it like that. Like we just we just do not. It, it wasn't like this for most of human history. We could do something better than whatever they were doing before it. Yeah, a lot of people might you know wish for like in this. So let's just shift over into the abolition section of it, the restaurant abolition. A lot of people look to, for example, a union as a path by which in the short term, you know, we make certain gains and belong to we can take over and radically transform it. The difficulty comes in how unions have traditionally operated in the restaurant sphere. They tend to be significantly less successful. I mean, restaurants usually have very high turnover. People only last a couple of months. Um, they often employ like a lot of young people who are just looking for part-time or temporary employment. A lot of people who do work there are constantly looking to move on to better things. And so it makes it difficult to create a stable union with a stable membership that can buckle down and really negotiate and push for the interests of the people working because people working are constantly changing. I, th I think one of the, like one of the really grim things this led to is that like, like, especially when fast food took over, like the, the, the major unions that even do exist, were just like, now nah, we like, we're just not going to bother even trying to organize these people because they just assumed it was impossible. And so like, there are, there are very, very few fast food unions. I mean, like, I think one of the only like, even sort of functional ones is uh, the IWW like organized Burgerville, but that's, that's been like it, like the, like the, the big unions when they've done campaigns for fast food workers, it's like, it'll be something like fight for 15, but it's like, they're not actually trying to like form unions of these restaurant workers. Like they don't, they're, they're not even trying. They're just trying to, they're, they're using them for sort of like lobbying and advocacy. Yeah. And the difficulty also comes when a union is established itself, you know, because a union structurally is not always by all the workers. You know, there's still 
sort of a hierarchy or bureaucracy that may establish itself and try to maintain itself, even if it starts off benignly. No, just for all of the radical history that unions do have, quite a few unions in the United States, particularly in the United States, have also been conservative bastions and bastions of different attitudes about like stuff like white supremacy. You know, there's there's a lot the union movement is as much Blair Mountain as it is trying to stop black people from being able to work on trains. You know, like all of those things are part of the history. Yeah. And I mean I'll I'll speak briefly on like the union situation in, in the Caribbean, particularly in Trinidad. The trade union movement was intrinsically, inextricably tied with the anti-colonial movement and the movement for independence. The issue became that the unions became tied up with the political parties that arose after independence and, well, during the process of independence. What ended up happening with the unions was that they ended up being tied to deeply with the political parties that ended up being that the established unions are, you know, the higher-ups in those established unions, they have these relationships of favors and obligations with the politicians. A lot of politicians come out of these union movements and end up establishing their own political careers. And because it's all so tied up when, you know, workers get into these industries that do have union, or have been unionized, there's a very clear separation between the union and the workers. Because while the union is able to, you know, push for the workers' rights and, you know, they're still separate from the workers. The, the union still exists as a no negotiator between the workers and the management. And so even if the workers wish to go beyond just negotiating, the union exists almost as a release valve for any sort of class antagonist, so any kind of pressure, any kind of real pressure against the status quo. I mean, it's not just unique to, to Trinidad or to the Caribbean. I mean, it's, it's globally cross history. We've seen union struggles kind of go over the same sort of dynamic. You know, new generations of workers, they build up the movements, they build up the unions, and then the, the unions begin to change and Perhaps new union leaders spring up to replace the old union leaders when put under the same position, under the same pressures, they react in the same way as the bureaucracy ends up being rejuvenated. Unions are reformed and they end up going back to the same old ways that they had been before. And in some cases, the fight to reform the union takes the place of the fight against the boss because of all the bureaucracy and system of obligations and just deeply rooted ideas about the place of the union because while unionizing is a difficult process union leaders do tend to enjoy certain benefits from their position and as we are aware of you know certain hierarchies are self-justifying those at the top tend to want to perpetuate it it's kind of like and so this idea that and this is just kind of an unsettled thought of mine but it's kind of like the idea of you know using the state to establish workers power and then abolishing it afterwards you know using the union to get some measure of workers power but then expecting this union of a certain structure that exists 
toward negotiating ends to somehow push in these sort of more radical directions. There's a saying that that um that the zine um the writers of the zine say it's like restaurant unions need there to be restaurants and we don't. I think that sort of applies more broadly because when we get into like the whole idea of like work abolition, it's just concept of workers are people outside of work, but a workers union exists within the confines of work as we understand it. And so I think that's where the difficulty lies. The zine goes on to say later on that Every time we attack the system, but we don't destroy it, it changes. And in turn, changes us and the terrain of the next fight. Gains are turned against us, and we are stuck back in the same situation at work. The bosses try to keep us looking for individual solutions or solutions within an individual workplace or an individual trade. But the only way that we can free ourselves is to broaden and deepen our fight. We involve workers from other workplaces, other industries, and other regions. We attack more and more fundamental things. The desire to destroy restaurants becomes the desire to destroy the conditions that create restaurants. We aren't just fighting for representation in or control over the production process. Our fight isn't against the act of chopping vegetables or washing dishes or pouring beer or even serving food to other people. It is with the way all of these acts are brought together in a restaurant, separated from other acts, become part of the economy, and used to expand capital. The starting and ending point of this process is a society of capitalists and people forced to work for them. We want an end to this. We want to destroy the production process as something outside and against us. We're fighting for a world where our productive activity fulfills a need and is an expression of our lives, not forced on us in exchange for a wage. A world where we produce for each other directly and not in order to sell to each other. The struggle of restaurant workers is ultimately... For a world without restaurants or workers. And I mean, so I think people are still going to call some alternatives to restaurants, restaurants anyway. Probably. But I hope this discussion has caused people to kind of deepen their approach to this issue. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sort. High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone, goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again! Platoon, present cell phone. High Five! High Five! Casino! Casino! Win at High Five Casino.com! High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. Father's Day is coming, a day we celebrate the guy who's always there for us. 
to crack a dad joke. Well, you know what's not a dad joke? Getting $50 off the Bartesian Premium Cocktail Maker with the purchase of his favorite cocktail capsule pack. $50 off. No dad joke. See, this is a dad joke. I lost my glasses today, and guess who I bumped into? Everyone. But the Bartesian cocktail maker, it's no joke. Each cocktail capsule contains real fruit juices and all natural bitters, so dad can make over 60 premium cocktails he loves. Sidecars, old fashions, gimlets, all with the push of a button. So for the dad who loves a cocktail with friends and a good joke from time to time, get the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. $50 off now until Father's Day. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get 50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Welcome to It Could Happen Here. I am Robert Evans, uh, and this is a podcast about things falling apart and sometimes how to put them all together. And, you know, today we're actually going to be talking more about the latter, which I know is revolutionary for us. Uh, We're usually just kind of like getting way more into the Doomer stuff. But I think there's been more than enough of that, particularly in the wake of several horrific Supreme Court rulings that I don't really need feel the need to go into detail on. But one of the things that has happened in the wake of these rulings is this like kind of liberal reaction to the fact that to the fact and they're right to be angry about the fact that they're being essentially governed by a small minority of people who are very densely geographically located in the South. That is where like uh, the bulk of the support for the the hard rights policies comes from. Um, And it's led to this like fuck Texas, fuck Florida, fuck uh, these these quote unquote like red states, these regressive states, which is this deeply problematic for a number of reasons, including the fact that, you know, if you just want to look at it in terms of party politics, uh, there were more people who voted for a Democrat in Texas in the 2020 election than live in the, either the state of Oregon or Washington. Um, these are densely populated places with a tremendous amount of people who are people of color, who are trans, who are, you know, in some way threatened by this weird Christo-fascist bullshit that is increasingly clamping down on the country. And so today I wanted to talk with some folks who live in and around the Dallas, Texas, what we we call the DFW area, Dallas-Fort Worth, um, and who have lately been organizing to kind of both confront this this rising Christo-fascist, like the street aggression portion of it, and to provide support and defense um, for people who are are being victimized by it. Uh, So I'd like to welcome some representatives of the Elm Fork John Brown Gun Club to the show. Hey, y'all. Hello. 
Yeah. Do you want to kind of introduce yourselves to, to start, however you'd like to be known on the show? Yeah. Um, I'm Satan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm Bubble. Satan and Bubble. Um, and I'm. how long have y'all been, like, doing... Because there's, there, there's two specific things that kind of... I don't know. I became aware of y'all, and and we had some brief interactions, or I had some brief interactions with some of your folks in in twenty twenty one during the the snow thing that that destroyed everything. Um, and so I've been kind of watching y'all's socials ever since. And there were a couple of things recently that struck me as very uh, worth discussing. Actions that you y'all were a part of. One of them was. There's a neighborhood in Dallas called Oak Lawn that is kind of colloquially known as the Gayborhood. It is like the um, the gay neighborhood in Dallas, obviously, and so it's a place that you know even before kind of things got a little easier after twenty you know fourteen twenty fifteen, um, it was kind of a safe uh, place and a little bit like of a of a of a fortress for like people who are not you know straight and cisgender, which is and kind of are. You know, for for so an idea of how aspects of the DFW area can be, the town I grew up in, Plano, had a condoms to go move in, and within like two nights of it setting up shop in Plano, somebody fired a nine millimeter handgun through the window. Like it's not a, it's a place where it could be difficult. Um, and so obviously repression and kind of violence and fears of vigilante violence. Um, from folks who are queer has is is understandably amped up in the wake of everything that's been happening. And y'all carried out an action where a, a sizable group of leftists marched armed through the gayborhood. Um, the one of the there were a couple of different chants that that I was hearing. One of them was um, about bashing back, something like that. You want to talk a little bit about like that action and what actually went down? Um, sure. So at the beginning of Pride Month, we had a large group of fascists come to the neighborhood. Um, you know, they were shouting groomer. They were telling us the fist of Christ is coming down on you soon. And, um, you know, making really out there threats. So we discussed, um, you know, what we could do to be proactive to make sure that doesn't happen again. Um, and we ended up getting together some groups who were interested in an armed demonstration, which even here in Texas is not something you see too often. Um, and we decided to march through the neighborhood. you know, um, I would say a majority of the people that we know are, uh, LGBT and, uh, it's our neighborhood. So, you know, we put on this demonstration there and it was, you know, kind of incredible. We got some looks, but we also got a lot of support. Um, we had a lot of great uh, chants, um, you know, bottoms, tops, we all hate cops. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. These <laughs> gays bash back. Yeah, that was the that was the one that was in the video. Um, and so what was the uh, I, I'm interested in kind of because I, I think this is the kind of thing that is potentially very useful. We we have seen one of the things that I have personally observed and that has been observed by a number of folks is that when these kind of right wing mobs who primarily want people who cannot defend themselves or don't have the numbers to defend themselves, they, they want to like beat the shit out of people in a gang, right? Like that's that's the, the Proud Boy thing. That's the Patriot Prayer thing. That's all these weird little groups, primarily what they want to do. They don't want a fair fight and when they are confronted with organized people on the left 
who are armed, that tends to scare the shit out of them. And if I'm not mistaken, during that day where you had those Christian fascists kind of coming after um, that queer family event, like one of the one of the live streams that one of the right wingers had, people were some of them were like commenting on the fact that there were people leftists open carrying and like how unsettling they found that. Um, so I'm interested in kind of how the idea to we're going to do this have this kind of a march, you know, through this neighborhood, we're going to make sort of a show of force, how that idea kind of came together. And then what logistically did y'all like feel the need to set up? Like, I, I'm going to guess it wasn't as simple as like, Hey, everybody with a gun, like come, come meet here and we're, we're going to have us a walk. Um, so I'm interested in kind of what the logistics are. Cause I think this is the kind of thing that people, other people are going to want, like find useful to do like statements of we are here. We have the tools to defend ourselves and we're not going to just passively let you run through our neighborhoods fucking with us? Um, I think logistically, one of the big things was just making sure that, you know, everyone who was carrying was carrying properly. And then also to protect our own selves, making sure that whoever was carrying was also protecting our identity by wearing essentially full black block, um, which that in itself sends a message, you know, a bunch of, queer people marching through the streets of Dallas in full black cloth with guns um, sends a message like, we're not going to take your shit. We're done. You know, you're not going to mess with our bodily autonomy. Um, that march happened, we had planned it to be on that day originally, and that happened to be the day that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Um, and it essentially just evolved that morning to a more intersectional body auto bodily autonomy march. But really, logistically, it was mostly about protecting ourselves and making sure that people who weren't carrying the firearms were also protected from our firearms. Yeah, I, I want to dive into that a little bit because that's such an important aspect of it is the ensuring... Say, I've, I have seen a lot of, of marches, and I, I will be honest, I have seen a lot of people being armed on on both sides politically who have done things with guns that I would consider reckless. Probably the top moment in my mind is during a big march in Portland, somebody leaned over and a Glock fell out of the front pouch of their hoodie that they were just had loose in there. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously it is not as, it should not be as simple as like, you know, load up on guns and bring your friends, so to speak. Um, how do you, attempt to ensure like how like how do you actually go about handling the safety aspect is it like are you appointing essentially kind of like range officers before the march we're keeping an eye on shit like what does that actually look like um i want to i want to give two examples for the march we did in the neighborhood um it was different in that it wasn't publicly announced where in um it mm -hmm. was going to be so it was kind of a by invitation only uh demonstration so we knew pretty much everybody that was coming except for people in the neighborhood who kind of joined ad hoc. Um, so that's one way that we've done things when we do more of like uh, protest security for other actions. Um, you know, there are different people who will feel motivated to bring um, arms and usually they know what they're doing pretty well in the couple of instances where someone is being unsafe um, you know, one of us will just go over there and talk to them, you know, like, hey, you, you, you really need a sling uh, for this or, you know, don't don't be uh, pointing it in any way at a building. Um, just little tips like that to 
you know, resolve the behavior. So when it actually comes to like, because uh, one of the things like whenever you have sort of a gathering like this is is de-escalation and even within people within the march potentially like dispute uh, resolution and that sort of thing. What was the how how did you kind of organize for that? Like, what was the planning on that end like? Um, I think that's a really important question. One of the first things that we decided pretty early on is that uh, we are not there to police any protesters. So, you know, if someone is is doing something illegal, uh, and no at no point will we you know tell them to stop or try to make them stop. We may move away from the area or something like that, mm-hmm. but we're not there to police our people at all when it comes to like counters coming up and antagonizing uh the main thing we do is try to put ourselves between them and any people they're targeting um and you know we have cameras we have less than lethal we have different tools to try to de-escalate that yeah and so when it comes to like uh uh i guess training on that and is did you kind did you have any sort of like um um, infrastructure, human infrastructure, whatnot, set up prior to this to like make sure people who were like doing de-escalation were folks that you knew, you know, had some level of understanding of it, or, or folks that you could trust. Like, how was the actual? How do you actually? Because I mean, it strikes me that there is a great deal of like trust that's necessary to put together something like this. To be able to meet up with folks and and like march armed together requires probably a little bit more in in the way of of, of trust than you know just showing up at a protest. Um, it, that's kind of more conventional. Um, was there sort of some in, any kind of like I don't know system or or like yeah training or whatnot that y'all had for specifically like how to behave, how to de-escalate, all that kind of stuff, or was it just like folks that kind of you knew from from prior events were good at that sort of thing? I mean, as far as our group goes, um, I can speak for myself personally and say that I trust each one of our people with my life. Um, and I think because of that and because we were really the ones putting it on, like we knew that if something were to go down, one of us would get in the middle of it and we all trust each other. I think that in any sort of organizing environment, trusting, trusting the people that you're working with 100% is one of the most vital things that you can do because they're going to be the ones beside you when a proud boy rolls up. And you want the person beside you to be someone that you can trust. Um, and we do that. We do have, you know, we, we do practice and we do train together. And um, we also have fun together. And having that certain level of trust means the world when you're putting yourself out there in that way. And how long of the folks that are kind of like you're, you're we're most affiliated with like making this happen. How long have y'all been sort of organizing and, and doing stuff together? I would say most of us met since 2020. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of us met in organizing different facilities during 2020 um, after the George Floyd protests and then through yeah. just the boom in mutual aid that happened in DFW after that, um, whether it was through homeless outreach or, um, you know, bail bonds or however we met each other it was mostly through that mutual aid community and getting out in the our communities and organizing ourselves and trying to find like-minded people who wanted to see the same change happen now um i think one of the uh one of the things that's been on my mind a lot lately and that that y'all particularly bring up is 
the challenges of organizing in parts of the country where not just, you know, the police who are always pretty regressive, but the entire legal structure is is set up to, as Florida has increasingly done, as a number of states have done, like punish protests, penalize activism, make things more dangerous for 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 people who are like going out there in public, in addition to doing things to try and criminalize, you know, people who are 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 not uh, straight, you know, white Christians. Um, so when you look at like kind of the challenges of organizing in a place where it's more dangerous, and obviously it's it's not particularly safe to be organizing against, you know, the LAPD, but the court system in California is broadly speaking less stacked against you. Um, so if you had advice to give to people who had don't have this group of friends and people they've been organizing with for a couple of years already, but they want to have that, they want to build that in their community, where would you suggest they start? Um, I always tell people that it starts by showing up um, to all kinds of events, you know, supporting a broad range of groups. And, you know, if you're at the protests, if you are at the uh, feedings, the distributions, um, you're going to meet people and you're going to build trust, um, mutual trust there. um, So that, you know, when you want to start a project, you want to start a group, you'll have those people that know you. Um, It is very dangerous. Uh, I think it's always important to tell people to watch your OPSEC, you know, don't be resharing all kinds of activist stuff with your personal profile that has your name and your birthday and all of that. But yeah, it really goes to meeting people in person, I think. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that's such a difficult part of it because I think for a lot of people, particularly who maybe are living in rural areas who are living, um, kind of outside of places that have well-formed protest communities, social media and the internet is is a lifeline for them and often in a lot of cases like how they came to a lot of the political beliefs and a desire to do something um but you're right like you can't you 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 have to actually get like face to face on the ground with people to actually build the kind of relationships that can lead to the sort of activism that y'all are doing and that's that is a tough needle for a lot of people to thread i think and you know in those more rural communities if there's not already those systems in place, you know, set up a monthly meal distribution with the local homeless shelter or the local homeless camp. And if you, you know, can get a few friends, more people will show up and you can build that community yourself, even where it's not existing already. Um, It's more about just finding those like-minded individuals that are already existing in your community and getting to know your neighbors. Yeah. Getting to trust your neighbors. I think that's a great, as far as a plan of action goes, as good as you can get for at least starting down that road. Um, Before we kind of move on from this specific action, I did want to talk a little bit about the conversations you had, both with like people who lived in Oak Lawn and also with, um, you know, passersby. I'm wondering, like, um, did you have any that particularly surprised you or that particularly stick out to you right now? I personally was a little bit more surprised with the amount of that we received um, just because while Oakland is the neighborhood it is a generally more blue liberal yes part of town uh, very anti-gun typically yeah uh, very yeah and to see you know people sitting on the patios of the bars cheering for us while we were walking by um, especially as someone who has been you know grown up in that area it, it meant a lot 
ago, it, it really shows almost like the cultural shift that we're going as far as leftist politics go, if people are going to be supportive of us. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. Now, I, I, I were there, did you have any kind of interactions with sort of, I don't know, people who were who were more conservative or more on the on the center right side of things? I think we had a couple of people um, who were yeah. kind of filming and frowning. It's always hard to tell. Yeah. yeah. In that case, but no one really said anything to us. That's interesting. I mean, I just Yeah, and now that was that what that kind of brings me to the next topic, which is how 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 did Dallas how did DPD handle this? Um, Even hardly out of our cars. But yeah, we had multiple police cars surrounding us while we were just unloading. Um, they were constantly trying to guess where we were going with the march um, by cutting off streets and trying to like escort us and like you know blocking traffic and things like that, but. Uh, but we were there less than five minutes before I would say at least four police cars were surrounding us, asking us questions. They were pulling out their guns like we were a threat. Jeez. Um, well, I mean, yeah, that's, I, that doesn't surprise me. Um, did you have any kind of like direct, Is uh, did they send like the PIOs up to try and, you know, talk with organizers or whatever? Um so they did right at the beginning, and I think that interaction yeah. went really well because um, they approached us as we were getting ready, and they said, you know, what group is this? Who's in charge? Who's who's leading? What are your plans? And, you know, every single person who was there was disciplined enough to either say nothing or say no plans. There's no group. There's no leaders. And, you know, after that, they kept their distance. They did not really interfere more. Yeah. I mean, that that is one of those things um, that uh, police, I don't know, I, I, I've always found it useful to, to when you are having when you have to have an interaction with a police officer and um, sometimes it is unavoidable. Like you need to kind of focus on like, what are the things that they need to hear for this interaction to like end um, and end, you know, not in them getting violent um and i think it sounds like yeah you you y'all handled it perfectly like that that was the right way for everyone to react like you were <laughs> it is texas like it's not like it is at all illegal to walk around with guns <laughs> um so yeah i mean that that sounds that sounds again I, i'm impressed by kind of both the 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 boldness of the action but also the the discipline that that was required to actually that was required like from the ground up, right? Not not because like the there was some sort of like vanguard leadership exerting force downward in order to actually make this work safely and in a way that that left hopefully and it seems like this is the case people who live in the area feeling broadly speaking pretty good about it. I would say that you know since the march in particular, just in DFW in its entirety, the support that we have received has been almost overwhelming. Um, you know, people now recognize the people in Black Block as being safe and they're going to help us. If I need something, I can go to them. And that's the whole purpose of community defense is having, like, my goal would be to have everyone be that person. Uh. Now, the other thing I would wonder, because it's, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time at Black Block protests, but generally in Portland, Oregon, where a hot day is like 80 degrees. 
Um, y'all are in fucking DFW. Um, those those summers are no joke, and wearing the gear that y'all are wearing is is um, a potentially dangerous thing, right? Like, was there was there was it kind of individual or left up to affinity groups to like figure out hydration and stuff, or did you have people who were kind of watching folks and reminding them and like trying to ensure that like that part of it was handled? Because that does strike me as a specific risk in this case. Most of us do have um, at least minor street medic training, um, as well as our own hydration kits, and we all carry extra electrolytes and things like that for people who may not be part of our group who may also need assistance. Um, that's a big part of it here in Texas. Is that's, that's the main risk with protesting mm-hmm. in the summer is dehydration, heat exhaustion, heat stroke. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we do recommend that the who are in black block where you know moisture wicking loose layers <laughs> yeah 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 merino is your friend if you can get it yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> um, but you know we all of us are you know at least trained enough to recognize those symptoms we make scenes that we can pass out to people um, about how to protest safely in the summer in the heat specifically that's great so much more dangerous now, one of the things I've been seeing recently, and this is, I'm guessing, from a more recent march, was the the, the photo going around that's kind of kind of viral uh, on right wing social media. Of um, it's a black and white photo. There's uh, an individual um, with a plate carrier and an AR, um, and another individual with um, like a chest rig and what I think is a Beretta um, carbine. Um, and uh, both of them are, are at a reproductive rights march, um, and there's a, a mix of really interesting reactions from the right, like on this. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in kind of, yeah, your thoughts there. Yeah. So it's, it's been really weird. Um, we try to track whatever's being posted about us. Um, sometimes it can give us Intel on people who might want to target us. Um, but we've been noticing, you know, it's like a solid third of right wing comments are kind of broadly supportive. I think it really throws them for a loop. Um, you know, we, we've even seen people saying, uh, actually, bodily autonomy is a lot like gun rights and things like that. So hey. that's been, <laughs> it's been really weird. I think yeah. um, being armed might kind of humanize us for some of those people in a way. It's, it's a, been a weird thing. I have thought a couple of times that, I mean, a number of times I talked about this on the first season of It Could Happen Here, I think, that there is some like potential to bridge some divides there with kind of the existence of of a of an increasingly prominent left wing gun culture. I know one of the comments I saw was somebody like going through the gear display and being like, "Actually, no, they're they're reasonably well set up, and like everything seems like this is this is exactly how you'd you know want to have it done." And just people being like actually appreciative. And I guess maybe there's a degree to which like if you're if you're in that community from a right wing side, but not like a straight up fascist side. Maybe there's a potential for like more commonality. And like you said, the idea that like, oh, maybe some of them will actually broaden their support for reproductive rights, um, you know, or at least consider it. You know, I don't know. That that doesn't strike me as like a negative move. And it, it, um, it is particularly uh, in a place like Texas, you have to try to at least um, have some sort of common ground with people who are, are more on the right wing side of things because there's so damn many of them. Yeah. So I think... Um it's one of those cases where when when ideology gets atomized to just like guns good, you know, that is like a core belief for some people. Um, 
that can draw them to being supportive of pro-choice marches in a in a weird way. It's it's kind of a pretty specific kind of brain worms, but uh, we've yeah. been seeing it a lot. Yeah, I wouldn't like call it necessarily a positive. Like it's a it's an aspect of things that are negative, but it's something that also can be like useful and and potentially positive. Like even though if you get into what's leading someone to like, oh, I re I reexamined my beliefs on reproductive rights because I saw some people marching with guns. That's not like a sign of of a, a series of thought process that I think is like wildly positive, but at least somebody maybe came around on something. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. It's better than them going the other way. <laughs> you know, we've been talking about the effects of getting all this right-wing attention. And, uh, you know, in a way, that's what we want. We want to advertise that we have strong community defense. And yeah. on the flip side, yeah. you get all these supportive comments, and hopefully those people don't want to kill me anymore. So it's, yeah. it's just yeah. a net positive, we think. Yeah, you're I mean, one of the ways in which these kind of protests can increase security for a community, like one way is that maybe there are people who will get scared off because they don't want to risk like getting shot. And the other is that maybe some people will reexamine their opinions on that community because it's now more familiar to them because they're probably way too into guns. But <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about um the the there there was a specific action um that kind of the thing that was going around on Twitter was these proud boys trying to get into, I believe it was a library and like a line of parents squaring off with them to like stop them. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was in McKinney. Um, it was the day after Roe v. Wade got overturned. And we honestly didn't know what to expect when we got there because it's McKinney. We were like, are we going to be? Yeah very much so outnumbered in this. And when we arrived, there was already about 30 to 40 people who were either parents or friends of the library there in support, and maybe only 15 or 20 people in opposition. Um, so it was you know, a pretty good, welcoming, supportive environment. Um, and about 30 minutes after we got there is when the Proud Boys arrived. And we just really only had to tell two people, hey, they're proud boys. And before I, before we could even get over there to like block them off ourselves, there were like eight to 10 soccer moms in their flip flops, Nike shorts and handmade signs standing in front of them and blocking them from coming any closer. Um, and of course they did get closer as people were leaving the library and the event was ending and things like that. But it was one of those things where it just organically happened and it was, it was yeah. beautiful in my That's opinion. That's awesome. Like in, in a place like McKinney of all places, like I yeah. grew up in North Texas, like McKinney yeah, is yeah, the yeah. last place I would expect <laughs> to find like a soccer mom in Nike shorts ask, like thanking me for bringing my gun to the library. <laughs> It was yeah, amazing. that's that's wonderful to hear. I mean, and I people who are not in the DFW area won't understand this. But like, yeah, I spent a significant chunk of my early life in McKinney and I would not have expected that reaction there. Um, yeah, that's really, really good to hear. And it, it also is, you know, I'm, I'm I obviously have, have been supportive of a number of tactics to confront fascism, including people showing up and blocking stuff and, and protesting or, or, or confronting them physically. But I don't think there's any more durable kind of community self-defense than than that than than a than 
a group of people who are just kind of live in an area and around and curious, realizing there's a threat and immediately acting against it. Like that's such a, that's such a powerful thing. Yeah. Saying no, not in my neighborhood. Yeah. And you know, again, like we didn't expect to have that reaction, which made it that much better when we saw it. And, you know, having those people, for the first time in their life, maybe even, come face-to-face directly with fascists probably has a lasting impact on them as well. Like, I hope that they keep going to more events like that and keep going and protecting their community from these people. Now, let me ask you, when you have these kind of interactions with folks, and when you had these specific interactions with those specific folks, is there kind of is there sort of an, an information spreading thing afterwards? Is there like a, Hey, here's who we are. And like where you can find out more about us, um, like kind of attempts to like, let people know who you are and what you're doing and how they can, you know, follow you and, and whatnot. Like, is that a, uh, is that a, is that a, a part of the activism or was it more just like we're showing up to kind of provide a barrier for these people? And like, that's not, this is not the time or place for that. It's a little bit of both. Um, uh, a lot of these actions we are invited to. Mm-hmm. Um, we have kind of made it a point to be known as we are here to help. Um, so a lot of times we will get invited or people will send us an event and we will we do usually try to get in touch with whoever's organizing the event to make sure that they are comfortable with us either open carrying or what they prefer is to concealed carry and things like that um, because it is necessary to be polite yeah and, um, but then also when we do we always meet people at these actions who are wanting to get more involved than just that one time and we do have ways for them to get involved in their community and learn from us now obviously Dallas is um its nickname for a long time has been the city of hate um, and it is a place that is I mean the city itself is fairly blue but there is, I mean, even within the Dallas area proper, a tremendous amount of people who are like extremely conservative, obviously. I mean, we've, I don't want to be harping on this too much, but is there a degree to which you're concerned about like attempts at, at infiltration and whatnot or attempts to, yeah, like kind of like, you know, to do sort of the, the fascist equivalent of what a lot of anti-fascists do with right-wing groups? There is a lot of concern about that. Um, we just... You know, we do the best we can. We think we've done a pretty good job already. But Clearly, yeah. Very careful with, um, you know, who we're, who we're in contact with, who we're working with. Um, we've had to, you know, stop working with abusers a few times. That is a tough one. We don't expand nearly as much as we could. Yeah. Uh, given all the people who want to be part of this particular group, uh, we believe more in you know, many strong groups and uh, try to help people do that. Um, But yeah, it's a tough struggle. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's an interesting, because I think maybe the, a better question for me to ask is, is not like, how do you avoid that? But how do you avoid like, because the, if you look back at the actual history of COINTELPRO, right, and the shit that like Hoover and his his goons were saying to each other, like the goal was not to infiltrate every left wing movement. The goal was to make people be so afraid of infiltration that they weren't able to effectively organize. 
And so that that is, I guess, kind of the real trick is this. Obviously, there's a degree to which you want to be on your guard. You need to be careful. It's 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 important to be not just ethical, but but like responsible in your OPSEC. But you also can't let like fear of that sort of thing happening just because you're, you know, kind of surrounded in a place like North Texas. You can't let that fear stop you from from trying. Right. I think um, a big part of that is it goes back to the trust thing. Uh, you know, we don't really let people into the close folds until they've come to a few actions with us and they've, you know, proven that they're not, you know, spilling the beans all over Twitter and things yeah. like that. You know, um, we know who they are and know what they're about and then we involve them a little bit more. Um, it's all about building that trust with the people you're working with. It just goes right back to that is, you know, trust is built over time. Um, and the longer we all know each other, the more we trust each other. And then, you know, we are able to have those conversations about welcoming more people in and, um, you know, setting up the processes for that. Now, has, just on a logistical standpoint, the kind of notoriety y'all have, have gained because of some of these actions, has it sort of led to, uh, like, difficulty in terms of we've, we're dealing with, like, so many, much interest, so many people reaching out to us? Like, how do you, how do you actually, like, organize kind of that? Like, how you, how you respond to people when shit goes viral, you know? I, I know how <laughs> overwhelming that can be. Yeah, that's been pretty new to us. Um, we've been more used to being kind of your local crew that does things no one ever talks about and uh having a larger profile now is a challenge because we do know you know attracting a lot more attention you know puts some constraints on us um but i think that goes back to why it's important to have a lot of different groups doing a lot of different stuff um you know you can't just have one uh group uh, doing all the organizing that needs to be done in an area. It's just a bad idea, you know, if a group gets taken out for a variety of reasons, you don't want everything to fall apart. Yeah. So I guess kind of as we come to probably close to the end of this, were there were there things that I didn't get into that you wanted to talk to about what y'all are doing and, and kind of what you want other people to know, particularly folks who, I don't know, we're in, in Louisville or in, you know, fucking Idabel, Oklahoma, and um, kind of want to feel, want to build um, or at least help to help to protect their community in a place that um, there's additional challenges in doing so. Yeah, um, I've seen that uh, recurring events, no matter what it is, you know, book club, distribution, if there's a place that people can find you regularly, that's a great way to have the kind of people you want to meet, you know, just, just walk up and talk to you. Um, for me, what, you know, watching your OPSEC and also compartmentalizing your information. Like if I don't need to know something, I don't want to know it. Um, and that's a good way to stay safe while also, you know, being able to organize and take action. Because like you yeah. said earlier, it's, the most important thing is the will to do something. If you're just, you know, the safest thing you can do is stay in your basement, but uh, then no one will do anything. Yeah, exactly right. Um, was there anything else either of y'all wanted to get into? I guess I also want to plug passing on training. So whatever skills you have, we've taught um, medical stuff, how to do an oil change, 
um, how to fire, gun stuff, martial arts, you know, unarmed fighting is also important. Um, share knowledge with each other, you know, make each other more powerful in that way. Yeah, that is, a, 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 I think, a great line to end on. Um, thank you, everybody else. And, um, yeah, um, you can check out. Actually, you guys want to plug your, uh, your, your socials? Uh, you can follow me at Bubble Break on Twitter. And um, it's kind of out now. But you can uh, follow Anarcho Airsoftist. We have training oh. videos on there. <laughs> Excellent. And then, of course, uh, Elmport John Brown Gun Club on pretty much all platforms except for TikTok currently. <laughs> yeah, I never got into TikTok either. One of these days. All right, everybody. That's the episode. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. Welcome to would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! <laughs> I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Dad deserves something really nice for Father's Day. But let's face it, we usually don't do it. Big gifts are for Mother's Day. Picking something up on the way is for Father's Day. Well, let's make Father's Day something this year with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. It whips up over 60 premium cocktails on demand, each ready at the push of a button. And right now, you get $50 off the Bartesian Cocktail Maker when you buy one pack of Dad's favorite cocktail capsules. Dad will publicly love that you saved 50 on the countertop machine that crafts premium cocktails on demand. And he'll secretly love that you splurged on him for Father's Day with the gift of a Bartesian. Because the only thing that lets Dad know he's the world's number one dad better than a world's number one dad coffee mug is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
What? Uh, inspiring networks of violent accelerationism, my nihilistic loss of faith in the possibility of human progress, and I don't, I don't, I don't know. That's probably not a good way to. Yeah, it'd be like that sometimes. Garrison, what are we, what are we talking about today? This is it could happen here. Podcast, bad things, world falling apart. There's just been a big shooting in Boston. You probably uh, heard about it. not well, Boston, Chicago, Highland Park, Chicago, Highland Park, I don't know why I said suburb Boston. of Chicago, not yeah. Boston. The Bo- Boston not bombing Boston. was, not, was Boston. Not, not this. I was thinking not. about the Boston bombing. Oh, there we go. It's also not really in Chicago. We should mention no. This. It's this like is, thirty miles a, away, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's 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 a northern suburb. Yeah, it's like it's, and it yeah because I I've heard a bunch of people say it's like a super rich neighborhood. And then I've heard other Chicago folks say that like, no, it's like a, an upper middle class neighborhood that used to be richer. And anyway, whatever. It's not like Chicago that. And yeah, we'll be talking about it because it's, it is an incident that fits within a pattern of behavior that very few people understand, nor are really prepared to think about. And it, part of why is because if you actually understand what's going on with this shooting, there is no political utility in what happened. Yeah. Um, and I mean that in a number of ways. There is no, if you are someone who is supportive of more stringent gun control, there is not political utility in the shooting for a number of reasons, including the fact that Illinois has strict gun laws. And while a lot of Illinois gun crime has to do with weapons that come in from other states, he bought his legally in the state of Illinois. Um, and even though like this guy was on police radar, he had made threats before they had confiscated all of his knives and he was still allowed to buy guns, even though Illinois has a red flag law that very easily, if you can confiscate a man's knives, they could have confiscated his, stopped him from buying guns or whatever. Plenty of laws on the books to have stopped this. And it's useless in a left, right political sense of the word, yeah. because there are, this guy does not graph onto any of that. I, I have, I think it is, there's a value in kind of putting out some of the Trump imagery he's put on only because the right has immediately leapt on calling him a transgender Antifa shooter. And I guess in terms of a social media thing, sharing him draped in a Trump flag is the quickest way to like rebut that. But that doesn't mean he's not. It's it's not useful not for actually understanding <laughs> yeah. what's going on. Right. Um, yeah. So let's. Yeah. There's very. This is it's it's in a pattern of shootings that are becoming more common the past few years. We saw it at the, uh, there was a school shooting last like October or November that the, the shooter had a very similar profile. Um, and it's a, it's a part of this growing online trend using imagery related to mental illness to encourage and justify mass acts of violence in some rebellion from how our regular society is structured and how people usually think of reality. So it's it's something that we generally, people who spend a lot of time researching this, myself included, try to be very careful about how we talk about this, right? Because we, we don't want the wrong things boosted, but also everyone just being in the dark isn't great either, right? That's, that's frustrating, right? If people are curious, they're going to start to look stuff up. And it's better that they have someone who knows what they're talking about, explain it to them, then then just have them be in the wild west of the internet on side image boards or forums learning about these nonsense propaganda styles. 
there's there's a few things that are unique about this guy. I mean, he was not only making the propaganda, but he also did he also did a violent act. That is actually yeah. more unique than usual. Usually the yes. people who are involved in making this type of propaganda that he was making, he made YouTube videos, music, he he, he was he was very prolific in what he was putting out content-wise into the internet. And usually the people who put stuff out in this style of propaganda and this style of like of a very very like uh, meme driven violent mental illness fetishization subcultures they they don't generally the people who make the stuff don't go out and do the stuff this is one instance where yes this this did happen so that's actually unique for a few reasons yeah i i mean i think one of the things that's interesting about that is that and this is something that has not been discussed nearly as much as I think it ought to have in the wake of the shooting. This guy basically released an ARG at the same time as he carried out his shooting. Like we're basically, gonna, a, we're going to get to yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, because in some ways, this is a really good explanation. Well, not explanation. This is a really good example of the yeah. post manifesto, like po- post manifesto terrorism, um, yes. where there's not there's not a written manifesto. It's someone's entire online presence. And their entire online documentation is is that. That serves as their manifesto. The whole image of them online, everything they've put out, it represents the thing that they want spread. It's not, people these types of people aren't are, are less likely to write, you know, like a ten page thing about how about why they hate X minority. Instead, they're gonna leave piles and piles of clues and puzzle pieces music videos and content that lead people into what they want to project as their mental state to be. Um, so it's like everything is in, everything is part of what they want to put out. Yeah, so, and I, I think both you can see the act itself, the shooting itself, as an attempt to spread the art that he was making and to spread this like profile that he had built. There's a reason why that logo that he had for himself um, was all over everything. There's a reason why. Pretty unique I'm, logo. Very unique logo. He put out some of the videos, one from 10 months ago, showed the location he's believed to have started shooting from, it yes. looks like. Um, so he was planning this for a while, and he. I think this was, this was meant both as, almost as like an advertising campaign for this guy's EP, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. But in a broader sense, uh, like, like, like it's, 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 it's more circular than that, right? He wasn't just trying to spread his stuff, but he was trying to spread his stuff in this this imagery and branding that he had created for himself and in order to put other people in that same mind state. It was it was also very personal to him. Um he's I've spent the past few hours watching watching hours of the stuff that he's put out. Um and I mean he's there is there is videos that he's animated of him doing a suicide by cop. Um, there's, there's music videos he's made about doing a school shooting. Um, these are, these are ideas and thoughts yes. he's been grappling with for a long time. And he finally did the thing. I'm, I'm unsure currently if he always knew that he was going to do this or if he was actually trying to fight it. Now that's, that's honestly not even worth debating because it's not useful to what's going on. No, cause he um, did it right. Yeah. Because, yeah. Be, because he did yeah. it, but yeah. we've had, you can see the types of stuff he's been putting out. Like, yes, the, the street that he did the shooting on, he, uh, has a long, a long zooming clip of yeah. that same street in videos that was posted like over a year ago. Um, so yeah. he's, he's been, he's been thinking in this way for a long time. This isn't like a fast radicalization. This is someone who has been heavily steeped 
in very, very small niche online subcultures for a long time. I mean, like, the guy is 22 years old. He's he's had his Twitter account since 2011. He's been online so much. Um, it's a deeply online person, deeply alienated, uh, socially isolated, uh, deeply, like, disassociative. Um, and this is, this is, by the way, consistent with what his friends have said, consistent yeah. with what people who knew him and worked with him and put music and albums together with him have, have repeatedly, a number of them at this point, come out and said variations of like, yeah, man, he, he got like really weird. Like it was it yeah. not, not like, and not in the way that like, oh, he got super into Q or like he became no. a Nazi, no. but like he got weird in a way I didn't understand. And I stopped associating with He him. got, he got detached from parts yeah. of, mar of like modern reality in ways that are really hard for people to understand. Um, and I think it's, it is important to emphasize just the, the deeply online nature of this. He, he had, yes. he, had, he made a whole music video, uh, titled I rely on the internet, um, that you, you, you can't find anywhere. So don't even try to, for the um, love of God, you don't need to, you don't need to, yeah. but like, but it, it <laughs> yeah. opens, but it opens by him saying, I yeah. get mad when other people are more popular than me on the internet. And the mass shooting is in line with this, with this style of thinking, right? He's, he is, he is trying to reify himself into a, into a mimetic image, to spread around the same way many mass shooters try to do this same thing. Yeah. But he is doing this extremely intentionally. Um, he wants to be the thing that represents a very specific idea. And I'm, it's again, we are always trying to be very careful, but like how much we get into this, cause you don't want to boost the wrong thing, but it's, no, one it's of important things, to talk about because yeah. it's costing a lot of people their lives and no one really knows how to deal with this problem right now. One of the beautiful things about our current age is that if you are someone like if you are someone who researches terrorism extremism violence particularly in the american context although certainly not exclusively christchurch and hall germany i don't need to go into it but if you are someone who who focuses on this stuff um you will repeatedly have the experience of encountering a new subculture online or a new trend a new like species of meme and find yourself wondering like when the first shooting's gonna be um, I made yeah. a significant chunk of my career because I was paying attention to one particular group of folks online when they did their shooting. And I am not primarily, I've not been in the, you know, we've talked a little bit about schizo wave, which is kind of broadly speaking, the thing that this guy most embodied. Yes. Um, that is, that is but, the propaganda style, which has a bad yeah. name. Yes. It, it, yeah, it's, it is it's bad. We're not obviously, saying this because he's we're schizophrenic. Not, we're not like endorsing yeah. its name. This yeah. is the style that people who are yeah. involved in this online community use. It's about fetishizing yeah. parts or fe the, fetishizing media driven aspects of mental illness yeah. to encourage violence. It is that's, fetishizing that's what the aesthetics it's about, of mental illness. Yes. The aesthetics yeah. of mental illness, right? People who are, who actually, you know, deal with mental illnesses, yeah are much less likely to commit violent acts. They're actually more likely to be the recipient of, yes, of, of yes. violent acts. This, yeah, is, this, this is not extremely this is not about... documented. So yeah, like, yeah, this is, to, this yeah. is like, I, th I think important to actually get people to like understand because this is one of the things that if you look at like Tucker Carlson, for example, like how Alex Jones responds to all these shooters, the thing they pivoted, one of the things they pivoted to is, oh, it's because all these people are on antidepressants. And it's like, no, yeah. <sighs> no, I'm going to, I'm going to talk happening. about, so there was there was this tweet by I, mean, I I hate talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene because I think it's useless to talk about her and it only gives her inflates the thing that she re represents. But but <laughs> but uh, she had this tweet about uh, it's a, a picture of of him that 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 he that he posted 
and she's asking, is he in jail or a rehab center or a psychiatric center in this uh. photo? That's not his bedroom. What drugs or psychiatric drugs or both does he use? And the the image here is of an image very clearly photoshopped of mm-hmm. this person sitting in like a it's sitting in like a mental institution holding a bible and it's part of this thing that is like again fetishizing the aesthetics of mental illness right it's like yeah. oh look at me i'm i am so detached from reality i be i i be, i belong inside a mental institution yeah, and the th- aesthetics is, of christian is, fascism which is yes. also a weird part of it there's a photo, one of the like uh, images he posted in 4chan, I think it was 4chan, I, I may be mistaken about the exact location, but it was like, it was a Catholic saint with like the, the, the sacred heart like in her hands with the head replaced by like some anime girl. I have, um, I've, I've, I have yeah, not seen that yet, but. Yeah, but yeah, I've got, this, I'll send you a link, th- yeah. Th- this image of, that he made of, of inside this, this mental hospital, like that, that is, that is part of the joke to him, right? Yeah. The, the joke, like, I don't think he would actually assume that someone would think this is an unphotoshopped image. I think he would, he no, would find that hilarious. No, because it's so obvious. Like, so he clearly would photoshopped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Marjorie Taylor Greene is just like, just like, unable to determine the most basic Photoshop. Like, you can see the edge marks very clearly. So, but, yes. but this, but like, this is part of the joke, right? And everything, getting into what he actually believes about reality and stuff isn't important. Because mm-hmm. everything about this is has to do with like post ironic violence and post ironic like comedy, post ironic like ideas of reality. It's the difference between this what is sincere and what is real and what is ironic and what is fake don't matter. They as long as they're happening, that's what's happening. So it's all as real as, as anything else. So getting into specific yeah. ideas about what he personally believes doesn't actually matter. Because one, we don't know if that's genuine at all. He's he's putting everything out intentionally, and two, it doesn't matter on the actual material circumstances what are producing effects inside our world right now, L- like these types of like acts of violence. But it's it's everything is put out should be it'll seem like contradictory. It'll seem confusing, right? He 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 opened a video of his that he was like doing a live stream, like like a, I think like over like a year ago, and he he calls everyone who's watching his live stream of. Uh, like he calls them communists he's like hey communists um and it's not because they're actually communists it's not because he likes communism it's not because he's necessarily a fascist either it's that all these things are so blurred and you use them interchangeably to produce this sense of meaninglessness yeah and the reaction to this meaningless world that he's constructed for himself and these types of online subcultures try to construct the only sensible reaction to this meaningless world is for them to do these types of acts of violence. That is yeah. that is the point. So the actual details of what they're saying aren't important because it's all about constructing this world that is utterly meaningless and self-contradictory and confusing and nothing makes sense and the only way to respond to that is to get out of it. And yeah. that's part of what they're they're trying to do. And um, there are I mean and again part of the frustrating thing is that there are all of these things that people try to kind of simply affix to this are pieces of it. Yeah, uh, American gun culture, the fetishization of of violence as yeah. the way to achieve positive ends in our culture is a part of this. It's why it's Absolutely. part of why the natural response to everything is meaningless and confusing is go Pick on a killing gun. spree. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and likewise, the 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 fact that politics is where it is, where you have like this one party that's the Republican Party that is almost entirely dedicated to like owning the libs and just purely attacking people rather than trying to do anything because they're politics. 
policies have been unmitigated disasters for the country, and the other side just kind of blithely tells people to vote, like that hopelessness, that like that that kind of nihilistic aggression on the right, all feeds into this. And and you could say that like a great deal of right wing media, particularly right wing alt media, is kind of forms a heavy component of like the milieu that this guy was radicalized in. Yeah. But it's more like that kind of stuff provided a language for him than it is that that kind of stuff was specifically like his motivating factor. I mean, same thing with like Trumpism, right? Like yeah. he, he engaged with Trumpism only in a way that it helps kind of destabilize things and is this like orbit of chaos, right? That's that's why it that that that's why it's into it, right? He was deeply into stuff around conspiracy theories, paranormal, deep nihilism, um, getting cut off from consensus reality, getting awakened to some like greater truth. Everything that he's actually into is all just to serve to serve those types of means. Politics aren't the core part of that, but it's a reaction to politics, and then he's going to use it as just a, as just another tool. It's. Because yeah, many of them are racist. Maybe they can share racist memes, but that's not actually the 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 center point of of what's going on. Um, and you know, in some ways, it'd be easier if it would be, because that gives you something actually easy to target. Otherwise, right now, you know, when you're trying to address this whole propaganda style that is encouraging these things to happen, it's a harder thing to clamp down on because it's it's in like an endless game of whack a mole trying to find out, you know, who's the big people pushing content like this right now in like these weird niche communities? How can we get them taken down? And they just always pop back up, right? It's always it's it's this endless game, so it's hard to target. And that leaves you with the feeling of like hopelessness on how this situation will be solved, which is like also part of the point of why these attacks happen is to is to get that reaction. Um but it sucks. Like it's 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 and it's always bad to just have the like the only thing you think about is like Oh wow! I don't see a way to solve this. It's just terrible, but that's part of the intention here. And man, it's it's not good because you know you it, this this isn't the first shooting that has happened no. from this schizowave aesthetic. There 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 has been other ones, but these things are normies are going to start hearing more and more about this, and that sucks. Um, it's going to become more of a of a thing that people are going to be aware of right as, as soon as as soon as npr starts talking about it you're like okay this is this is fully this is this is fully escaped the box it's 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 one of those things when um because i was just I, I was saying earlier like what it's like when you finally when you find yourself staring at it, something that is going to blow up in a violent yeah. way and just not knowing when uh you are one of a number of, of folks who i've known who are kind of particularly dealing with this space. And it's been like two years that yeah. folks yep. have been saying like there is, there will a bit like, and the the thing that is most, almost as frightening as like anything else is that, and then fucking Brett Bear is going to be talking about schizo wave on yeah. the news. Like we're going to have to, we're going to have to deal with like Joe Rogan trying to parse this shit out while stoned. Um, while stoned and, and, and while yeah. talking about the Kaliuga. And while talking about the fucking Kaliuga. <laughs> Which does uh, lead us into the board ape yacht club, Garris. So are, are we gonna are we gonna segue onto? So we're gonna talk about one thing that dealing with schizo. We, we finished talking about one thing dealing with schizo wave. Then we're gonna enter into another thing that the the only accurate way I can describe describe this is that my my dives into this into this theory are the equivalent of what it feels like to have a psychotic episode, and that's yeah. not that's not disparaging at all. It's about the actual 
things your brain does when that happens, how you take one meaningless piece of information and project meaning onto it to make it super important, um, and how that kind of cascades down. Oh boy, so... The board, the board Ape Yacht Club, um, aka now I guess the Board Ape Nazi Club, because people yeah. online have decided that they're yeah we really somebody, good at researching Nazis. I guess uh, hop somebody hop into the fucking subreddit and tell us that we we needed to be uh, all right. We needed to be dealing with this. <laughs> yeah, I like. So, I I was like like randomly I I like visited some of my friends in Chicago who are like normies and like they were telling me about this video and I was like oh no yeah it's, mm-hmm. it is it is again it has fully escaped the box now and that's yeah. part of the problem yeah. so. There is this YouTuber uh, who made a video in partnership with a quote unquote internet artist um, about how the Board Ape Yacht Club uh, friends of the pod uh, are secretly this Nazi op to troll everyone into spreading esoteric Nazism. That's that's the claim. Now, first I'm going to say that the guy who made this video was in partnership with this internet artist who at the same time launched a rival ape-based NFT project and this video served as an ad for his rival ape NFT project. Uh, and his, so, to be clear, his ape NFT project was taking the art that the Board Ape Yacht Club used for their apes making no changes to it and just uh-huh. selling it to people on a different platform, which is like intellectual property theft, right? Right? Like, I never want to be the guy saying the Bored Apes are legally know, in the right I here, know, but right? they sure are. I can't yeah. believe, like, we are not defending Bored Ape Yacht Club. It's we're, we're, stupid, we're talking, and I want them to be hit with a brick, but we're like... We're talking about this because people are appropriating <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the term, the, appropriating the almost like the aesthetics of anti-fascist research they, to start they, selling their own products. They are appropriating the aesthetics of anti of scholarship focused on extremism um, in yeah. order to sell NFTs. That's what's happening with this, the Board Ape Yacht Club or Nazis video. So again, so all the information comes from this, from this guy who's a rival, a rival NFT in, in, internet artist. Yeah, what's his fucking name? Um, I, writer Rips, I think. Yeah, Writer Rips. Yeah, because um, he's being sued now by the board apes or whatever yeah. and like good god i and i mean everything yeah. I, I i i i i'm not I'm, I'm, if you watch the video that we're referring to i'm not disparaging you in case you thought it was convincing because i mean that was part of the editing is it was trying to make it seem convincing yeah but every every single thing is like cherry picked and squished together to resemble meaning but once you actually open it up you're like oh this is actually nothing um the whole 30 minute section on the cipher is about them doing ciphers badly to get a result out of the clues that they were given they're looking for specific results to match whatever they want to see um and everything else is the connections are so tangential um and it's it's like synchronicity gone bad right it's people who take these things and project meaning onto them when in in reality that's just how everything in the world works and it's not actually meaningful or important it's just because you're focusing on it so you're going to see it everywhere this is the same thing we were talking about in our food factories conspiracy video yes our our, our podcast sorry and and it basically one of the things that has made this i think spread so virally is that there's a germ of not truth but there's there's a single convincing point that it all starts from and the single convincing point is that the Board Ape Yacht Club logo looks was, like it very w- was ripped from that other Nazi yeah. logo. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it very, is very much patterned off of like the um the old SS Death's Head. Well, because I shouldn't, yeah, because there's a number of things going on there. Because the Nazis were really good at graphic design, and and because um, also that's not originally a Nazi thing. It has its origins in a, a Prussian military unit, and there's a reason why the Death's Head. <laughs> 
went so far. And it is generally like, for example, when you see a death's head on a Ukrainian soldier in like Ukraine, that dude's probably got some pretty Nazi fucking beliefs. Yeah. It's yeah. not a, it's, it's not a, again, so the fact that you see something that looks like it may have an inspiration in that, um, but like is, half, a, is again, a worthwhile point to start looking at stuff. Absolutely. From. But once you go at it with a conclusion in mind, then find things just to back yeah. up your own conclusion. That's not how you do good research. Because, man, like, one of the founders is Jewish, not saying Jewish people can't be fascists or whatever, but, like, half the people who started it are ethnic minorities. They're really bad writers, and they put together this thing that's complete nonsense, and people are now assuming it's this yeah, mega it, it, conspiracy, and it's not. It's just bad. It's so, and I think part of why people are so, so, I think part of why a chunk of the people who hate it want there to be a conspiracy is yeah. because this thing has made so much money, and it is utterly banal. And, yeah. and idiotic. And it is utterly banal and idiotic. And part of the thing, a lot of this comes out of, and a lot of the strength that kind of this individual, this thing has, this this video has, comes out of the fact that years ago, a number of folks, some of whom are present company here, started warning people about the ways in which fascists would hide things like 14s and 88s. And, yeah, and all of all of like um, dog whistles, hidden imagery, yes. all that kind of stuff. Here is and and so people started to get primed to the fact that that happens that the Nazis hide shit and that 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 you should be on the lookout for it. But one of the things that has been forgotten, I think, in kind of the rush to do that for shit like this is that it's not just the fact that they're hiding. Like in in the, in the specific case of people who are putting 14s and 88s and shit. When I was discussing that, it was nearly always in the context of like members of Patriot Prayer and the Proud Boys and affiliated groups who were beating people in the streets, right? So you not you don't just have the imagery, you have someone going out and doing things that like they are claiming have nothing to do with fascism, but like no, you can see like if you have an ape, this and they're yeah. If you have an ape that's numbered 1488, which is a thing in the video, yeah. it's because there's like 10,000 of these apes and they're all numbered there's, in numerical order. Yeah. It's, it's the, like the fact that in a group of a set of 10,000 apes, one of them is number 1488 is not Nazi dog whistling even more any more than it would be satanic dog whistling that there's going to be a 666 in there yeah, you know? just, it's, it's like it's, just it's like, like there's that. one that's 6969 just like there's yeah. one that's 2347 whatever yeah it's it's like that thing people used to do where like you, you, I, I don't know if people still do this but like there when i was like kid people would like you'd get someone who'd like pull out a, a grid of a city and they start drawing pentagrams on it yeah, exactly. And it's exactly. like, well, yeah, yeah, there's a bunch of random lines if you can, you can draw big. anything you want. <laughs> yeah. But the uh, other thing that's that's a really pro that's a big problem about this is not only it's passing off bad extremism research to sell their own NFT product, which is bad in and of itself. It's also saying the stuff that doesn't need to be said out loudly to a huge audience all while using the fast wave image style. And that sucks because yes. it's talking about things like traditionalism. It's talking about types of esoteric Nazism that usually we don't want to put a giant megaphone on because when people get really into this, you get stuff like the shooting that happened a few days ago. That's that's Those are the same internet communities that this stuff is really fostered in. So we don't like to amplify it because the more people who are in these communities, the more their brains slowly get chipped away at by these people making, this, making these types of like hypnotic propaganda. So... When we have a YouTuber that has a vi video with millions of views talking about the Caliuga, talking about Julius Evola, talking about a whole bunch of stuff around like r extremely niche occult Nazism, that's not great, especially when they're using the fast wave style of video editing to make it seem really cool and scary. 
And, and when they're doing it ultimately to make money in an NFT scheme, right? It's yeah. it's it's more than just this is not just somebody did research that was like bad. Um, this is somebody crafted a viral thing using the aesthetics of research um, and dropping some really dangerous shit into the yep. consciousness in an irresponsible way to sell the same ape drawings they were attacking. Extremely frustrating because yeah. I mean, yeah. Even the whole cipher section of the video, I'll still just reel against because it's, it's about people using a bajillion cipher methodologies to get specific results out of it that they want. And all the results they get out of it also are like not problematic and are kind of explainable. Like all of them refer to something about monkeys anyway. So even if they are true, it's not, It's it doesn't necessarily need to be referencing this obscure thing in traditionalism. It's like, oh no, that's because it's the name of a fucking monkey. And... I don't again. I I don't have any actual opinion on whether the Board Ape Yacht Club has someone working for it that is hiding in secret references. Because honestly, I don't care. Uh, because all because what it's viewed publicly as is a stupid NFT thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, and, it's and not again, it's not viewed publicly by people who use it as a secret Nazi conspiracy. Because if it is, what's the impact? What's what's yeah. the impact that it's had? Like how how would it matter if it's a secret Nazi conspiracy theory? What's it what's it doing? Yeah, it's it's that's, selling bad pictures of monkeys. When it's, we when we talk about the first wave of this and like the need to explain, you know, the symbols that people were hiding in these like right wing street movements, a bunch of whom wound up feeding into Jan Sixth, it's easy to say, well, what the, the harm was? They were going out, they were beating people, they were ca- planning terrorist attacks, right? Yeah, like, the, yeah, they doing, did stuff. doing terrorist attacks. I have, I again, I fucking hate these board ape motherfuckers. I think this is the stupidest fucking. I don't know, trend I've seen in my entire goddamn life. I cannot point to anything even vaguely Nazi they have supported or done. Like, among other things, if you want to know if something is a dangerous conspiracy or a stupid grift, one question you should ask yourself, and this isn't always relevant, but one question you should ask yourself is, is Jimmy Fallon involved? Because if Jimmy Fallon is involved, it's probably just a dumb (laughs) grift. It's a grift! Because, I mean, the whole... whole (laughs) The, watching this guy break down how you get secret messages out of these ciphers is it's it's the same it's the same thing as like QAnon shit. It's mm-hmm. people wanting to get an answer out of numbers and things and then pushing that answer as truth, even if it's like not not based in any form of reality. Yeah. Um, it's it's so it's it's really frustrating to watch people basically start using QAnon style research tactics to justify their hatred of an NFT project, which is like, no, you can just dislike it from being an, an NFT thing. You don't need to wrap it in a in this package that is just really bad extremism research. Part of one of the things that scares me about this attack and about like what's going to happen kind of in the media after it is that um, I think kind of inevitably these aesthetics are just going to get co-opted on a wider and wider basis. That's what's happening on, on TikTok right now. Oh, is good. that these these types of fast wave and schizo wave aesthetics are just becoming a core part of the Zoomer online aesthetic, and that sucks. the The other point I was I wanted to mention about the Highland Park thing is like this this guy that did this is such a perfect profile of this type of detached, uh, like Gen Z, like almost I I I like like post politics terrorism, um. That like he is such a perfect example of someone who's been online since he was a very very little kid, trying to make content online. Right, everyone in Gen Z needs to be performing all of the time. Right, your whole life is a performance for the internet. 
um, he was doing that same thing. He's been making been making music and videos and shit since he was since he was since like younger than me. Like he's been doing this for a long, long time. Um, and the types of like you know like nested communities that you get like that you like fall into, it's such it's such like a clear example of the very types of things that you know me and others have been talking about and warning about for a while. Um, and it's the whole like muddledness of reality that we even get with this like board ape Nazi club video, right? They're all part of this same problem with the internet. Like our brains weren't designed for this much information coming at us at the same time. We cannot sort it all out. Um, and it's not ideal. Um, I, it's not, it's not great. Yeah. I would I, rather it not be like this. I don't know how to like come at people with a solution to this because it, this is a, an unsolved problem. It's like come up with a solution for, uh, the fucking um the the fact that uh emissions like are not going to be reduced. I know because the like, world because the world does suck. Yeah, um, but yeah. be very be very cognizant of video propaganda styles and mm -hmm. anyone that uses flashing like classic or catholic um like uh imagery. Be very be very careful. Be very careful of people who fetishize the aesthetics of mental illness. Be very careful about. About people that that uh, you wrap these aesthetics of of men mental illness in like a very violent package, because mm -hmm. um, like that that's what we get with 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 the shooter. He was like doing doing videos about about you know these aesthetics of mental illness that end with him just like a picture of like a drawing of him holding a gun. Um, you know, way before he bought a gun, he was making art about about this. Yeah. Um, I yes. think the one that stuck out to me most was him repeatedly referring to himself as a sleepwalker. Yeah. Um, which, which I don't know, like, obviously that is very much in line with the, the schizo wave aesthetic stuff that like you have been talking about. It also kind of makes me think, I mean, it, 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 it brought me to thinking about, uh, Barbara Tuckman, who is a, a historian who wrote a book called the guns of August. That's a history of world war one. Um, that, that, describes kind of the machinery that got set up and marched everybody into that situation exploding like sleep sleepwalkers right um like this system has been set up and the people are kind of so unwilling to see where it's leading that uh everything's just kind of marching with a with a sense of inevitability towards a worse and a worse endpoint, and that's and that that's is, what scares me most about this. Is, that, yeah, I've I've listened to many of his horrible songs, and there's yeah. lyric and there's lyrics very similar to that idea. Yeah, um, of, about that kind of inevitable, like fate driven nature of our current si situation, and how reality has become so muddled with the internet, um, mm -hmm. and like we there's been uh, an, an intentional top-down effort to destroy any nature of consensus reality and make everything up for debate um there's there is there is facts no longer are a thing like they just, they just don't exist um yeah and this is the world that results from that happening when there's people in power who put are pushing for this like you know like steve bannon is among you know one of many people who are pushing for this type of world um this is the result that we get, and this is the result that they kind of want us to get. It's, 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 it's yeah. It's, I, I mean, it, because if everything is true, and that's fi fundamentally like what they're going at for is this idea that like everything's true and nothing is everything. Yeah, and, and if every like, and if you hit that state, you can do anything, right? Like yep. to uh, to steal a quote. Who was that? Was that fucking Crowley? Um, 
the but but like that's very much nothing is true everything is permitted yeah yeah i mean yeah. that goes all the way back to the assassins the yeah orig- well uh, allegedly goes alleg- back uh-huh, to the hashishim yeah, sure. yes sure 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 uh-huh um but no but it is like that is that is the thing right if you I mean, get people, even this even the shooter guy yeah. had numerous discordian references in mm-hmm. in his shit um yep yeah, it's all about the same stuff. It's all it's all dealing with these same problems, and right. Obviously, if if you know if you deal with dissociation as I sometimes do, if you you know like parts about the Discordian aesthetics and like like the kind of ideas they play with, that does not make you an inherently dangerous person. That's that's not the problem here. Um, the yep. right, like you could like I'm you know in some ways, but I I I think about a lot of a lot of these same topics because I look at all of this. I'm. I'm. I look at all of this research all the time. So it is, my brain's in a similar is is in a is in a similar place. That's that's that doesn't make you a bad person. That doesn't make you dangerous. Um, but I think it's important to be cognizant of the type of propaganda that people are pushing, the types of propaganda trends and styles that are producing material effects in the world, like these types of shootings. Um, yeah. And so. I don't know what else to say, honestly, because it's bad. Yeah, it's it's a problem. I would say if anyone ever tells you about something they saw on the internet, hit them and run away screaming. That's a yeah. good that's a good way to move forward. Um, and please don't don't start. Other thing is like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna the right is gonna have two possible reactions to stuff like this, right? They're gonna one do a satanic panic. They're gonna be like, "Oh, look at these people doing occult shit." Mm-hmm. Um, let's do another. Let's do another satanic panic, which yeah. would suck. There, there's, 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 there's that option. Obviously, that that would tie into like transphobia. That would tie into a whole bunch of whole bunch of bullshit. Um, the other option is that people start, you know, using mentally ill people as a scapegoat and start saying we should lock up people who deal with mental yeah. illness. Yeah, that is also not in, in like that would suck. Wouldn't solve the problem either. Wouldn't do it. Yeah, and like that's the thing. I've been, I've actually been seeing this in the last really like probably three months. Is there's been a bunch of people who've been calling for like bringing like bringing sort of old school asylums back. That's that's and, exactly like, that what stuff, the people the people yeah. who make this propaganda. That's exactly what they want. That's yeah. that they they want you to have that reaction. That would make things so much worse if you put people like this in an asylum for ten days. Then they get out. They're they are so much more likely to to, to do these types of things. Not because they're actually like not because like n- nothing to do with their actual whatever like mental things they have going on. It's because of the aesthetic, the aesthetic stylings. Right? They want to be a character in a story. If they feel like their life is going in a direction that they are a character in a story, they're getting put in these situations that they've memed about, right? This guy's pictures, he's photoshopped of himself inside mental institutions, right? It's it's a character in a story. If you do that, you're playing right into their hands. It is, that is not what, that should not be the focus of what we are doing. Um, Like, carceral problems are not the solution to these types of things, Um, especially for people who are, who are like, just making music online like what are you gonna do fucking arrest people for, for the like for the music they make like that is not the solution don't let people turn this into targeting people who have actual like mental like mental things that they deal with don't make them the scapegoat of this um and be very careful if anyone tries to do any kind of satanic panic nonsense about secret occultists who are trying to alter your kids reality or whatever very careful because anyone who uses that type of framing for this problem is not genuine. They do not actually care. They are pushing something that they want. Yeah. I mean, and I think one of the reasons why 
the idea that these people are kind of seeing themselves as part of a narrative is important is because it represents a discontinuity with the way mass shootings have worked for most of the time that people listening to this have been alive in the United States. Prior to a couple of years ago, really 2019 was the big break year for this, the vast majority of mass shooters were also committing suicide. That was part of the goal. That was what happened. Um, And if you are an individual with a gun uh, who has just committed a series of murders, it is very easy to make sure you die in that attack. It's extremely easy. Um, That is why so many of them did it. That has... That has stopped being a given in the way that it used to be. The change, I think, was Christchurch was the main inflection point for this. But Agreed. a lot of these guys go down alive. The 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 Buffalo shooter taken alive. The last um, the last schizoid yeah. shooter from a few months ago uh, was taken in alive. Um, which is intriguing because if I was to watch all this video propaganda beforehand, I would have assumed that this guy wanted to die within the act. A lot of the stuff was written about him doing this to kind of end his life and escape into whatever is next. That, that's the kind of feeling I get uh, that's from interesting. A, lot of, a, lot, a lot of his writing, and yet he didn't. Uh, I saw it is, it's a, a great interesting deal of the, uh, of the imagery he was putting out, particularly the shit with him in, in the asylum, as kind of evidence of, of where, like, part, it was part of why I suspected, like, he, had, he intended to get taken alive. That is, that is, um, that is very possible. I mean, like, because yeah. in some way, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to speculate this further. Is, this is not, not um, necessarily the most useful. Um, yeah, I'm not going to. Yeah. I'm not going to speculate further. Uh, but there's a lot of a lot of possible things to 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 think about there, which I will do so because I have all the stuff. Don't no one else, please. Like it's you don't don't look at this stuff because it's like forbidden, right? Don't 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 seek it out because it's like oh, it's forbidden knowledge that they they don't want you to see. It's dangerous. Ooh, that that's that, that's not the point. The point is it's bad, and now it's also like hard to find. So like just like yeah, don't like, don't watch it. Like it's not it's not even, it's not worth watching. It's so, not yeah. Like like it's I, not I watched good. a bunch of this stuff like like in the immediate wake of it, and like my what happened to me was I got a fucking headache. You get a and headache. I felt bad. And it's you like, feel bad. It's this it's, sucks. And it, like, it wastes your it wastes your time. Like, yeah, like if if you if, if you want to get this like the experience of this without having to like do this shit, like fucking eat a bunch, like eat a shit ton of candy. Watch, watch and then you'll Pink feel Floyd's like shit. Yeah. Watch, <laughs> yeah. watch Pink Floyd's The Wall. Jesus Christ. Yeah, <laughs> except except the thing is the thing is if, if, if eating a bunch of candy or watching the fucking wall, like you it's had actually experience better. before Much this better. is actually good. Yeah. Whereas this is just like it's it's only the bad parts of that. But I I only look at this because it's my fucking job. And yeah, it sucks. <laughs> yeah all right well um you know i'm gonna i'm gonna say we're probably done here um yeah so i don't know until next time again if anyone tries to tell you about something that happened on the internet strike them and flee remember run hide fight from people trying to tell you about things happening on social media these are this is this is the good strategy going forward The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. Welcome to Burger 
If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM. Let's create. Dad deserves something really nice for Father's Day. But let's face it, we usually don't do it. Big gifts are for Mother's Day. Picking something up on the way is for Father's Day. Well, let's make Father's Day something this year with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. It whips up over 60 premium cocktails on demand, each ready at the push of a button. And right now, you get $50 off the Bartesian Cocktail Maker when you buy one pack of Dad's favorite cocktail capsules. Dad will publicly love that you saved 50 on the countertop machine that crafts premium cocktails on demand. And he'll secretly love that you splurged on him for Father's Day with the gift of a Bartesian. Because the only thing that lets Dad know he's the world's number one dad better than a world's number one dad coffee mug is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. All right. Podcast. Uh, it could happen here. It's a podcast about the terrible things that are happening all around the world and the wonderful people who are trying to fix them. Uh, what it is today is a podcast with Tarek Lubani of Glia. And what really inspired me about this story and made me want to share it with you is that it came out of a really dark place. Uh, Tarek was on the ground in Gaza treating gunshot wound victims and a lot of gunshot wound victims. Uh, like I remember reading his field testing of the device and just being appalled by the number of people who have been shot, lots of them children. And some of the the reporting he was doing, right? Like, oh, I had this, this tourniquet and we were reusing them and they don't work very well on a pediatric application because kids shouldn't be shot. Right. But instead of getting down, he was able to 
make a solution. And I think that's really important. And I really like that even through like this dark and, and terrible stuff that we've all had to experience and that he experienced in Gaza, he was able to see a positive solution, a way to look after people, to move forward, in this case, to prevent death and preserve life. And I think it's easy to focus on the dark stuff. There's enough of it happening. Uh, but I think it's important to focus on the great people who are doing great things to protect and care for other people as well. So that's a little bit of what we got today, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, so I'm here with Tarek Lubani. Uh, he's from Glia. Uh, they're a company I came across when I was writing about uh, 3D printed tourniquets. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about Glia and what, what you do there. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Tarek Lubani, as you had mentioned. I'm an emergency physician. I work in Canada, in a city in Canada called London, and I also work in the Gaza Strip as an emergency physician as well. Glia was really an answer to a problem. The problem being that when I see patients in Gaza, they don't get the same quality of service that I can give to my patients in Canada. Of course, that's multifactorial, but a big part of that has to do with the way in which we as uh, the medical profession have medical devices that we don't release, that we don't give access to other people to use. And so Glia's purpose was to take the most medical devices that doctors use and to make sure that they were accessible and available to doctors all over the world. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that, that's very cool. And uh, you make a number of devices, right? Like I know that uh, I first talked to you about the tourniquet, but uh, you make also a stethoscope, is that right? The stethoscope is the calling card of medicine. And so it was the first project that we started working on to test out the theory. I mean, we started with the theory that, hey, we can probably make a device that's just as good as a $300 device, but the costs, let's say $3 or even $30. And that was the stethoscope. We tested it, we published the results, we proved it was as good as the gold standard, the Lippmann Cardiology 3 at the time. And off uh, using it both in our own practices, also making it available to other people to make for theirs. Okay, yeah. And so that's what's really interesting about your company as opposed to other companies, right? You're not necessarily like manufacturing and distributing. You are providing the designs that allow other people to make them, right? And so can you talk about some of the like... Uh, I know that you use 3D printing and I want to talk about that, but also like I remember seeing that the tubing and the stethoscope comes from uh, like a Coca-Cola machine, right? So some of those considerations. Yeah, absolutely. The purpose is to make these devices available to other people for the lowest cost possible, but also like actually be available. It's no good if you can make it for 20 cents, but the parts that are required are nowhere. So that's why we went with a basket of items that are more or less universally available, and we made the stethoscopes out of that. For example, you can probably get the very specific kind of earpieces that most stethoscopes have, but they are naturally going to be less available and less abundant than if you were to use regular earbuds that on headphones. There are way more headphones out there than there are stethoscopes, therefore those parts are more available. Even if, of course, they're, they are less expensive, but even if they were slightly more expensive, it would be worth it. What we really take away is the monopoly and the profit motive. And so by doing that, or rather, let's say the exorbitant profit, 
that uh, medical device companies are making. And by doing that, we're really able to, to realize the promise of patents. All of the devices that we make were patented at one point. The promise of patents is that when the patent is over, you'll get a cheap device. But that promise is not realized. The stethoscope is a 300-year-old device, basically. And the fact that it is not available at the highest quality except for $300 is kind of nuts. So that's why we started there and, of course, moved on to more and more complicated devices, much more complicated even than the tourniquet by now. Okay, yeah. Can you... Um, so I remember reading... Because you, you, you kept a blog, I remember, on like Medium where you talked about testing... Uh, the tourniquet uh, when when you were in Gaza. And it just, A, like, you know, if you read medical literature, that it, 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 this was just the shocking, I remember being absolutely shocked by the number of casualties uh, you were encountering, encountering. And then also, like you were saying, like the, the lack of available tools. Um, so perhaps you could explain like uh, a little bit of, of what you saw there and then um, how these tourniquets have been able to help you address that like massive disparity in access to care? The tourniquet project really started in Gaza because we noticed that after one of the wars, the war in 2014, that we had a particularly high casualty rate, of course. But of that, there were many deaths that we would classify as preventable. Deaths where we felt that had tourniquets been available, those patients likely wouldn't have died. Um, when we started working on it, of course, we knew at some point there'd be another war. It is, it is very common in Gaza for there to be attacks by the Israelis. We didn't anticipate for it to happen so fast and for it to happen in a way where the tourniquet was so necessary. That, of course, was what, what's called the Great uh, March of Return, where Palestinians protested en masse. And one of the Israeli responses was to shoot live fire at the protesters often targeting about 80% of the hits were targeting the arms and the legs, which is where tourniquets are the most effective. So the high number really is owing to the way in which the Israelis decided to deal with this protest, the fact that it was a protest rather than a specific war. And that meant also that we could predict with a relative degree of accuracy where the injuries would be, which meant that it was even more important to have the right equipment and the right training. It was part of an overall strategy. So, of course, it's not like tourniquets were the thing that saved lives. Tourniquets were part of a campaign to train paramedics and to train doctors in how to stop bleeding and these kinds of injuries. And they were one of the most important tools in that campaign, but only part of that campaign. Yeah, of course, of course, you need other tools and obviously the education and the, you can't just slap it on and then the person's fine, right? Obviously, there's a lot of care afterwards, which is important too. Um, can you maybe talk us through, um, you talked about like the promise of patents, right? And I think this is important in, in exactly what we're talking about in tourniquets because it's a little different to uh, like uh, medic medicines, right? It's a little different with medical devices. Um, so there are existing tourniquets on the market, right? And I think uh, the sort of market leading one is it's the cat. Um, can you explain like why are those not getting to people who need them desperately in these areas? The problem with the tourniquets that are available right now kind of falls into a few different categories. North American Rescue, the makers of CAT, have two key patents on the CAT. And as far as we can tell, 
just based on the posture of the company. If anybody else were to make exact cat replicas, they will be sued. The people who are willing to then make exact cat replicas tend to be people who are unaccountable and largely have not much to lose. And so that's why we saw a glut initially, um, for example, with uh, the Ukraine campaign of uh, tourniquets that, that were relatively low quality. And so you can't just make the device. You also have to know that the device will work because you don't want to discover that when you put it on an arm or a leg and then it fails. Gaza is an acid test of all of these things because not only are devices generally not available or expensive, uh, it's kind of at the bottom of any purchase list, for example, but also in Gaza, there's a complete international blockade, Israeli-led, of course, but there are other countries that are, that are contributory. And that blockade means that equipment can't get in so long as the Israelis deem it to be of, of military value. Um, this is where things like dual-use devices and so on come into play. The tourniquet is a medical device. It, is, it can only be a medical device. There is no second use. And so it should be exempt. However, even if the Palestinians could afford 50 US dollars per unit, which would be the cost to get one in, the Israelis won't let them in. So de facto, even though they shouldn't be banned, they are de facto banned. And that means that not only can we depend on cheap Chinese retailers, let's say, to give us replica tourniquets, we actually have to manufacture them ourselves. When we open sourced our designs, it was with an eye to two things. One, making it available so that the replica makers can make higher quality replicas. They're already making replicas. We may as well give them a legal replica rather than a patent busting replica. Not that I think there's anything wrong with that in these cases where there's emergencies, but just the same, uh, Glia's tourniquet doesn't break any patents. And at the same time, in addition to giving them the ability to make high-quality tourniquets, we can also make high-quality tourniquets locally and domestically because, of course, national liberation, as it were, in the medical device space can't come if you can't make your own devices. We discovered that during COVID. The Palestinians have known that for decades now, and we're kind of rediscovering it in Ukraine where there just aren't enough tourniquets, and so they, they are forced to improvise or accept tourniquets that they don't want to accept. Right. Yeah. Like I think uh, I think COVID was this great example that we can't continue to rely on the sort of whims of global capital to provide things that we need to survive. And I think your manufacturing is fascinating. Uh, so because you're using essentially uh, commonly available materials in a 3D printer, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, we're not against using other things. They just have to be very simple. For example, our electronics use PCBs. You can't 3D print electronic circuits just yet. So we use PCBs. But when we design our PCBs, there are a couple of ways to design it. You can design an eight-layer board that can only be manufactured in one or two places in the world. Or you can design a board that's three times the size, but can be manufactured anywhere in the world. And when you're talking about credit card size devices, if it's notebook size instead of credit card size, it doesn't really matter that much. For example, the, the example I'm thinking of here is an electrocardiogram, where we took a, a device that had failed um, in the sort of market that they, the makers open sourced. 
And they had intended it to be a fitness device. And then it didn't work. Their company went bankrupt. And so they open sourced it. So we looked at their schematics, all of the problems that they had already solved. We said, okay, the problem we're going to solve is to make it so that this can be manufactured in a high school electronics lab. And we were able to achieve that. It was bigger. It was twice as big. But who cares? The old one was half the size of a credit card. You know, who cares? You make it a little bit bigger, but at the same time, um, you make it much more accessible. Twice as big, 20 times more accessible. I know some of your stuff, like your tourniquets, is really, um, there's not much or any really of a performance trade-off from what you've seen, right? Indeed, they might be better for uh, some pediatric applications, if I remember correctly. That that's right. So when you think of the way in which corporate devices are made, they are made to the specifications of particular buyers. And the buyers are the people who have the money. Who's the buyer for tourniquets? When you think about who needs tourniquets consistently, who do you who has money to give you tourniquets, who should you market to? There's only one sane answer, and that is first world militaries, especially occupation militaries or militaries that are engaged in uh, ground level warfare who are expected to take small arms or IEDs. And so there are not many children who you have to sell to in that particular market. There aren't many small women or even women at all that you have to sell to in that market. So I don't think that North American Rescue's engineers would have any trouble making sure that their tourniquets worked amazingly well for children. But why? Why would they spend one, two, 20, 30 million dollars doing that work and research? when that's not their audience and that's not their buyer. For us, the normal person, the civilian is the, in quotation marks, buyer. They're not the ones buying, but they're the ones who are the main consumer. And so they're the ones who we target. In Gaza specifically, 45% of the population is under the age of 14. You'd have to be crazy to go out there and put a tourniquet out that only works on big, burly men. So that's, that's why we were... Uh, we were driven to do that. And as for the performance trade-offs, yeah, you're right. The, the, what we learned about spec sheets on lots of these devices is that they're made up. There isn't really a great way to know how well a tourniquet works, unfortunately. There isn't a really great way to know how well a stethoscope works. And so some of the first work we did was actually designing some tests so that we can say, okay, well, here's how you prove that this stethoscope works as well as that stethoscope. Or here's how you prove that, you know, this works as well as that. And those testing protocols, we made them open source and easily available too. For example, if you want to test a stethoscope, you can do that with a pair of headphones, a microphone, and a Hello Kitty balloon. That's how we did it originally. Could we have spent $10,000 making that test rate? Yeah, we could have. But that wouldn't have helped us in terms of helping other people make stethoscopes wherever they are. Yeah, that's very cool. And then by open sourcing that test, you allow for other people who have ideas or sort of models for their own improvements or different designs that they can then use that test, right? And then continue to improve and and share their improvements with others. I do not want to work on stethoscopes anymore. I want people to take (laughs) it up. And it doesn't mean that I won't. Of course I will. But my favorite thing is when somebody sends a message and says, hey, I like what you've done here's how I think it could be better. I love those messages. I love them. And you know what? Nine out of 10 of those ideas don't work out. They don't pan out. But 10%, like it, 
our stethoscope since 2017, all of the improvements have been from other people because we haven't had the time and money to work on it. But we have been open-minded, have incorporated lots of design changes that other people in the community have suggested. That's a good thing. It's good for everybody. Yeah, I think it does an excellent job at getting at the like the fundamental conceit of our uh, drug and device development model, right? Which is that, uh, that, that which isn't true actually. That, that there's massive R and D costs, and those R and D costs have to be recouped by charging a massive amount for a period of time and making access to that medicine or device a privilege, not a right. And then eventually the costs will come down, which they often don't, and then everyone will have access to this thing. And it like. It's been my experience that it doesn't work that way. But what you've shown is an alternative, right? That people want to help and that, that they don't, that, that there's not a need for this like price gouging to facilitate the improvement in this technology. Is that fair? We're not taking a purely altruistic model here. People are generally improving the stethoscope for their own uses. So there is a self-interested aspect if you yeah. want to present it that way. What we realized is that actually the most useful way to develop a device is to make it as good as possible and release it and then have other people who want to improve it have a capacity to share back to you. So as much as I I believe in altruism and I do think every time that I've seen people collaborate, I've seen a tremendous amount of it, this more resembles the open source software model, where which is actually the world I came from. I came from the free software model where Yes, you do things just for the fun of it, but also very large corporations are involved. For example, some of the stethoscope's improvements happened because a lab needed to use it for some experiments on animals. And so they made modifications and they fed them back. Amazing. That's yeah. fantastic. And But that, that was totally self-interested, that they knew that it would right. cost them significantly less to build on our work and it would cost them nothing to share back their, their contributions. So... It's, you know, we're not going out there trying to, to prove that everybody is good at heart, even though I do actually think that's fundamentally true. What, what we're doing is showing through this model that devices can advance with relatively little upfront costs and with the contribution of many, many members. Yeah, yeah, that's a, you phrased it really well, I think, that people have this self-interest which also serves other people's interests. And and it's like yeah, it, it, I've seen it in all kinds of open source communities. Like um, we've reported before on three D printed guns, uh, which is obviously it's kind of a different end of the spectrum. But uh, it, it's fascinating to see this global exchange. Uh, and I'm sure you have people. You've mentioned that there are people in Myanmar who are who are printing your tourniquets, right? We were amazed when people from Myanmar had reached out and said that we've seen your tourniquet and we want to implement it. We have a situation that's very similar to Gaza. We thought that's exactly what we want. What they did was two things. One, they took our instructions and they used them, but then they also fed back to us how those instructions were incomplete, how they could be better, and some design changes that made their lives better. Again, amazing. By them using it, by them taking they also gave. And that's the sort of relationship, the kind of solidarity that we've seen whenever other people have used uh, our devices. We've noticed that they take, and it, it's not a problem if 
people in, in Myanmar had just taken and not given anything back, that's fine too, because it doesn't take anything away from us to share. Right. Yeah. This is this is a, a kind of sharing where the more you share, the more there's potential for benefit, but there's never a loss. You never lose by sharing. In that sense, we're not also trying to present it as though we need people to share for us to feel that this model works. We don't. But we're already making it anyway. We're already using it anyway. We're sharing and some people help out by contributing back and some people don't. It's, it seems to me to be the most effective way to develop devices for low cost and make sure that they get out to where they need to be. Yeah, because the kind of 21st century and people who need them can find them, as you found out, right? Like people across the world. Do you have a sense of where else they're being used? The tourniquets right now are being used in Gaza, in Ukraine, and in uh, Myanmar. If they're being used in other places, we're not really aware of it, but people aren't compelled to make us aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and all three of those locations have moved forward the project tremendously. For example, for Ukraine, uh, the the Ukrainian support people weren't really able to contribute so much their own ability to construct and make, but they were able to contribute really important research, financial, and testing capabilities. And so, of course, a project like this costs money. They're like, hey, look, you know, we don't have farms, uh, print farms, but we do have some cash that we want to put into it. And we were able to use that money very, very effectively, more effectively than if they would have bought the pieces, to then create the capacity for them to go and make their own tourniquets. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about that. That's fascinating. And uh, and we could maybe contrast it to a, a sort of a, another model, right? Like uh, if, because um, you were, I understand you're able to go to Ukraine and help them set up uh, as opposed to, yeah, it would have taken months, I imagine, to do that with, uh, a, I don't know how they make the cats, but they uh, they like wrote, they molded or something, but with, with a non sort of, with a non-open source, non-printed model, like to set up a tourniquet factory in, in Ukraine or Poland would take months, right? Yes, absolutely. But you're not going to, there's two reasons why uh, North American Rescue, I'll just call them NAR from here on out, yeah. won't do yeah. that. One of them is that that conflict at some point will end. It's very expensive to set up production lines. And the other thing is the more tourniquets you put into the market, the cheaper tourniquets get, you know, supply and demand, like we learned that one pretty well from capitalism. And so they have an inherent disincentive, whether they recognize it or not, whether it's conscious or not. North American Rescue and all these companies have an inherent disincentive in flooding the market with tourniquets, whereas we do not. For us, it's the opposite. The more people we lose, pretty much Glia loses about 10 to $20 per tourniquet that we manufacture. We have no incentive to keep doing it. We want other people to do it because we want as many tourniquets to be provided as possible. What we do then is we heavily subsidize the tourniquets using our own internal funds and, and uh, fundraising that, that we do with the goal of getting them out there so that deaths can be prevented. And so we want other people producing. When I go there, every tourniquet somebody else makes instead of me is less headache for me, is less pain for me, and is less financial loss for me, uh, and for Glia, of course. So our incentives are different. They want a shortage, consciously or not, and we want an abundance. We want everybody to have a tourniquet in their pocket. Now that's, that's our goal. 
Can you talk a little bit about your experiences in Ukraine? You were there pretty recently, right? Ukraine is a very, very complicated subject when it comes to tourniquets because the tourniquet wasn't uh, this. uh, I'm going to mind my words very carefully. I'm not Ukrainian. I'm not a Ukrainian doctor. And my experience there is very limited. I am in solidarity with the medical community in Ukraine. And part of being in solidarity with a medical community is recognizing that even when there are weaknesses, it is not my place to insert myself into their processes. And so the way that the Ukrainians have approached tourniquets is at the outset to ban all 3D printed tourniquets and to basically make it so that only what they considered to be high quality tourniquets, mainly the CAT and another, uh, another one or two models, were available in there. This unfortunately created a tremendous shortage. And the other thing that functionally happened was a disconnect between the policymakers within the medical community and the people on the ground. The people on the ground, of course, are doing whatever they can to provide care wherever they can. And the policymakers are a little bit more disconnected from that and so have different considerations. The shortage then creates this um, difficulty. You know, there are, of course, 3D printed tourniquets aren't accepted officially in Ukraine, but there are an abundance of 3D printed tourniquets in Ukraine because the people on the ground are accepting them. Um, And what we see is a kind of grassroots experimentation with how it is that we can prevent deaths. The other difficulty is that tourniquets are a tool and in bad hands, this tool isn't going to work, even if it's a great tool. And so one of the things that I realized, and I think everybody at this point, uh, I'm not saying anything that's new or unknown to the community, uh, we all realize that without appropriate training in how to use a tourniquet, they're not going to work. Um, and so even high quality tourniquets out there in the field are failing because they're being used improperly and it's causing unnecessary deaths. So I don't know how deep you want to get into that experience in Ukraine, but I think what we can say is that it's important to be in solidarity with that community. And as such, we're providing them all of the experience that we have and all of the capability that we have to produce uh, tourniquets that the Ukrainians themselves, both officially and on the, uh, in the front lines, are able to use and, and feel are actually safe for their patients. Yeah, yeah, that's a difficult situation. I think obviously a lot of what's happening in Ukraine has been necessarily like like rushed and it's somewhat uh, perhaps chaotic is, an, is the wrong word, but it, it, it took a while for people to uh, to fully sort of um, understand the the necessities of the scale and the scale of the conflict, um, or perhaps understand this is still the wrong word, but um, yeah, to to come up with the most of, the way to do the least harm, I guess. That's such a great way to, to frame it. And I think even from your experiences, you see that very often in these situations, that's the name of the game. It's not even doing what you know is best, but rather figuring out what the least worst scenario is. Yeah, yeah. So often, I think, uh, and it's very easy, I think, to um, to like backseat drive these things, right, from from uh, our positions of safety uh, and and 
a sort of a plenty, you know, to say, oh, well, should have done this, should have done that, which I think you did very well to explain that the first and most important thing is to be in solidarity with the people there and uh, to hopefully allow their experience to guide us in how we can best help them to to prevent death, prevent harm. And so can you talk about what you were able to do there? What sort of uh, interventions could you make to hopefully help prevent more dying? The main thing that, that we did in terms of, so I, I kind of was there in with two hats on. One of them was the tourniquet manufacturing hat. And the other one was as an emergency doctor. Because remember, fundamentally, what brought me to medical devices in the first place was that I was an emergency doctor having problems actually uh, caring for my patients. As a tourniquet manufacturer, basically it was about engaging with other people who are making and using tourniquets to understand some of the roadblocks and problems. One of the biggest ones is that there isn't a great way to test units of tourniquets. So traditionally, tourniquets are tested by design. Uh, NAR says, here's our design and here's how we tested it. And then we accept that this particular company will make this particular device to this particular standard. But in the Ukraine, especially with the presence of replicas and 3D printed tourniquets, there became a new problem. How do you test each unit rather than a specific line? And working on that, I don't know how into the weeds you want me to get, but working on that is still a problem that is unsolved, but has been one of the biggest issues that we've been dealing with. On the emergency medicine side, of course, when I provide direct care to patients, I was in a hospital on one of the communities on the front line on one of the fronts. And so providing direct care became important. And working with the doctors, many of whom didn't really experience that much, uh, have that much experience with trauma patients. So working with them to share our experiences from Gaza in low resource trauma medicine, and also to gain from them their experiences, because of course, their scenarios and situations are different. It's more artillery-based rather than small arms fire or um, sort of bombing-based. So there, there are different scenarios. I had a lot to learn from them, and I did. And um, I tried to contribute some of our experiences as well. The training, I think, is probably the number one problem right now. But that's my personal opinion as one doctor who is there for a limited period of time. So that... That individual unit test that you're you're working towards is because um, I know in in theory uh, at least a cat is a single use device, right? Um, so in theory, if you if you just slapped it on something that could measure pressure and tightened it, that device is then being used and and shouldn't be used again to provide care. Is that the uh, bottleneck you're running up against, or is it sort of making a way to test things that's replicable and cheap and accessible? Reusability was the number one problem that we tried to tackle in Gaza because we couldn't print tourniquets as fast as they were being used. And so we reused them up to 10 times. And when I was in the hospital, I walked by this IV pole with a bunch of tourniquets hanging from it and I instantly recognized what I was looking at. That was a tourniquet rewash station in which tourniquets that came off of patients were being rewashed, dried, and then sent back out into the field. Whatever you think the standards are for a tourniquet, when there's this level of, of shortage, that's what's going to happen. That's right. what happened in Gaza, and that's what happened in the Ukraine. That's what I saw with my own eyes. 
Of course, we don't need to stretch that far anymore to recognize this. What were people doing with N95 masks two years ago in my hospital? We were holding them, storing them, washing them, reusing them. So this is something that, that we see whenever there's a shortage. And it makes the unit testing that much more important because if you could take an already used tourniquet and assure that it will succeed the next time it's being used, that is so valuable, so valuable. And it cuts down every tourniquet you can reuse as a tourniquet you don't have to import. You don't have to buy, you don't have to package, you don't have to uh, ship over all of these lines. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I think it's probably, we should probably address like the, the ways in which they can fail because I think uh, like just people in the United States actually in an extremely like resource rich setting, right. Uh, will probably have knowingly or unknowingly acquired a tourniquet on Amazon or somewhere else, eBay uh, that, that might not be a real one. Um, so, or I want it's real, uh, but with might not be a reliable one. Uh, can you explain like, like how they fail and what the consequences of that failure are? There are two kinds of failures when we talk about tourniquets. One of them is what we would call a technical failure. And the other one is a clinical failure. A technical failure is the easiest one for most people to spot. The tourniquet literally breaks in your hand and that's it. You hear a crack, you see something crack, you see a break, things fall apart. The end. And so one of the things that we we want is to minimize these by over-engineering. So for example, the first glia tourniquet was engineered to spec. You're supposed to be able to turn it three times, and so we made it so you could turn it three times. And then what I realized is that even I, who was like super well-trained, I would be in the field running while my eyes were full of tear gas, while people are shooting, and I didn't, I'd forget, did I turn it two times, three times? So we, over, we started over-engineering the tourniquets. At a certain point, of course, every tourniquet is going to break. You turn it enough times, every tourniquet is going to break. But that's not necessarily going to be the case if you have even a moderate amount of training. I'm going to turn it four or five times, but I'm not going to turn it 20 times. So the technical failures are one kind of failure. The other one is clinical failure. Now, here's something that I wonder if you knew. About 35% of tourniquets from the gold standard company fail. They fail on application. And that number goes up to 50% if you were to check 60 seconds after application. So what does this tell us? What this tells us is that clinical failure is actually the important marker here. Because we know tourniquets break. We know tourniquets fail in general, especially tourniquets that have been in some GI's pocket in Afghanistan for six months. Uh, Those ones, their failure rate can go even higher. And so what we train people to do is to recognize clinical success. Put on a tourniquet. Did the blood stop? No. Put on a second tourniquet. Did the blood stop? No. Try a third one, if you have them, obviously. And so the routine training involves applying a second tourniquet. And one of the like happiest moments for me, I I mean, this is obviously bittersweet, but was when I saw uh, a patient who was brought in by a medic who I had I'd been in the training for, and he had applied two tourniquets to a guy who certainly would have died had he, had he not had the tourniquet applied to him. 
and was exsanguinating so much, injury so severe, that he needed a couple of tourniquets to really get it under control. So it's, it's where we have to recognize that there is no magic tool. This is part of an overall program. There's no 3D printer that's going to train people. It's just going to make you stuff. And then you have to do the rest of it. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I think if we, uh, we should look maybe at the fact that, like, I live in the United States and you're in Canada. Um, I think there were, like, three mass shootings yesterday, uh, right? The, 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 the threat of violence is certainly at a, a high for recent times in uh, for a, a, a more diverse range of people, right? There's always been violence in this country. There's always been violence against certain groups of people disproportionately in this country. Um, but people are probably more concerned uh, with, with treating gunshot wounds than they would have been 10 years ago. Um, so if someone was looking to make one of your devices, uh, uh, how can they do that and ensure or do their best to ensure that they are doing so in a way which gives them the best chance of success? At the moment, I would say to the individual maker, don't do it. Not for a life-threatening situation. If individual makers want to make tourniquets, then they're going to have to be proficient at three big things. One of them is plastics, 3D printing, ensuring that the quality of the plastic is good. The other one is sewing. That is to say, assembling sewed stuff. And the third one, is is quality assurance because even done perfectly a certain number of tourniquets aren't going to make it and that quality assurance is both at the moment of manufacture and then over time because of course all devices deteriorate over time but tourniquets have such an important role that you have to check them periodically and make sure everything is okay so i would say to the individual maker don't or if you do do it as an exercise rather than as an actual tool. If somebody's in an emergency situation, there's nothing they can do except to do it, then be in touch with us. So for example, there are makers in in countries that have been in touch and have said, okay, look, I have to do this because the situation here is bad. We support them as best as we can. We try to send people out to them or we try to have them ship units to us. We try to get them up and going. Glia is not a medical device manufacturer. Glia is a access to medicines, an access to medical devices company. And part of that is making sure that people who are making medical devices are doing them to the highest possible quality. So if you are forced to make them, be in touch with us. We will help in any way that we can. However, there's another category of people. And that is manufacturers who already know how to make medical devices. To those people, we say, take our stuff, please use it, please. It is there for the taking and it is high quality. It works really well. And if it's missing something, tell us, we'll make it better for you and for us. Yeah, that's great. I think that's really excellent advice. Uh, and perhaps uh, a good note for us to finish on. Where can people find you if they want to get in touch? If they uh, if they want to look at some of the devices, uh, like making a stethoscope, I imagine could be like a fun project and a lot less uh, potential risk there. So where can they find that stuff? Absolutely, the stethoscope is such a fun project. It's fun because any everybody has a heart in general, 
and um, you can listen to your family and friends and loved ones. And it's one of my favorite things when I'm in practice and I listen. For, sometimes a patient will be there with their son or daughter or yeah. child. And I'll tell the kid, you want to listen to mommy's heart or daddy's heart? Oh, it's one of the best things. So the stethoscope is a great, fun, low-risk project. Please go ahead and do it. Make it. You can find our stuff anywhere you can find printable stuff. It's on Thingiverse. It's on printables. It's basically everywhere. Or uh, through our GitHub uh, or on the GLIA site. So that's glia.org. And if people want to participate, uh, they're very welcome to. We always want, need, and love help. And of course, it's a community. You can never have too many friends. So we're always looking for more friends and love to see more people. Uh, we have a Mattermost. Obviously, it's not just our devices that are open source. We try to make our entire stack open source so people can join and chat with us and you know, hang out with people who are doing really, really cool and super impressive stuff. At this point, I love to recognize the fact that I'm one of the least productive, least impressive people at Clea. Really, the work that's happening is amazing. And it's led by lots of smart, dedicated, visionary people. Yeah, that's great to hear. It's really cool that you can uh, we can work with people as well. So hopefully people do get in touch. I'm sure there'll be someone who's interested in what you're doing or has something to contribute in some fashion. Yeah, thank you so much for giving us some of your evening. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we finish up? I think the most important thing to say is that there's this mystique that people develop. You alluded to it earlier. There's a mystique people develop around medical devices. Medical devices are solutions to problems. And they were made by people like me who don't know what the hell they're doing sometimes. And so let's not, you know, aggrandize or like separate ourselves from the people who are doing this work. Yes, we have to be cautious. Yes, we have to be rigorous. But at the same time, we can all contribute and be a part of this. Very cool. And can people find you personally anywhere? Do you have social media that, that people could follow? Yeah, if people look up my name, Tarek Lubani, I'm on all the all the socials, as is Glia as well. So you can contact me or Glia and participate in, in anything that you want. And like I said, we we always welcome friends. Great, wonderful. Thanks so much, man. Thank you so much. That was such a pleasure. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. I won! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sarge, High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again. Platoon, present cell phone. High Five. High Five. Casino. Casino. Win at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. 
So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, guys? This is Sean, Lights Out Merriman. And Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com. And we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com.